Welcome back, everybody, to the newest episode of Cake Bites. I'm super excited to be back after my short break, um, but I can assure you that with my recent move come some great things, and that includes regularly streaming on Twitch, so make sure you guys follow me on Twitch at Cake Bites to get a notification whenever I go live. I'm really excited to finally share this interview that I did with Tim McVeigh. He is not the Oklahoma City bomber, as everybody likes to joke, um, but instead holds his own separate place in history and particularly in uh, video game history. His place in video game history has been showcased by a documentary called Man vs. Snake on Netflix, and we talk about the history that the documentary covers uh, in addition to things that the documentary doesn't cover and how the documentary actually changed a lot of things in Tim's life and the way in which history continued to unfold. So without further ado, here is Tim McVeigh. obviously on man versus snake and i watched it last night it was really good i was very confused about the last very last scene before the credits roll when walter is levitating on the sand though (laughs) and then like you get two shots of him wearing this giant scarf over his head and i was just i I was so confused by like those those are the last couple frames i was like what is going on so Walter, the thing that brought him to Iowa, I guess, in his younger days, he was from like Hate ashbury out in San Francisco and mm-hmm. the 60s. He went through the whole drug thing with the LSD and the make make love, not war and, you know, all that stuff. The, the hippie age with all the drugs and stuff. And at some point, I don't know what made him come to the conclusion, but he, he decided that was bad for him. And then he started getting into the um, transcendental meditation and that's what led him to Iowa. There's a place in Fairfield, Iowa, where he lives. It's the Maharishi University, and that's what they studied under, the Transcendental, Transcendental Meditation. I have a hard time saying that. TM. What? Right? What? So they, in Iowa? Yeah. I feel like of all of the places that you would have told me that there is this Transcendental Cross Atlantic. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um <laughs> I know it's crazy. Iowa just there's so many weird things in Iowa that if you don't live here, you don't know it's here necessarily. It's really weird, but yeah, that's that's why he's located in Fairfield because of that. He goes to university all the time down there. He eats a lot of his meals on campus. Um, it was a different experience because I've never been to India. I've not really been into Indian cuisine. And Walter had Tina and I down there and took us to university to eat one day just to have a meal with him and just spend some time talking to him. And uh, he comes back with like two plates just mountains of food i'm looking at walter look at that food going there's no way he's gonna eat all that and he did he downed every bite of it i was like holy cow (laughs) and i could hardly find anything i wanted it just it was so far out of my league out of my wheelhouse you know i'm i'm an iowa farm boy type kid and you know corn on the cob and chicken and mashed potatoes (laughs) and and pizza and spaghetti and stuff like that and i I found some food that i ate it was all right it wasn't my thing i'll be totally honest it wasn't my thing but it was neat. It was a different experience. I didn't even know all that was there. I mean, I knew the university was there and I knew he went to it, but that's, that was the extent of what I knew until yeah. he was down there. So it was, it was a pretty neat, neat, interesting day. No kidding. So how, how old were you when you met Walter? Um, see, I would have met Walter in 83. So I would have been 15 at the time. 
Wow. So, yeah. you know, I, I didn't realize it until right now, um, even though I watched the documentary last night, that you have known Walter for so long. Like he, I guess I didn't really put two and two together. <laughs> well, Twin Galaxies, um, I don't everybody it means something different to everybody you know there's the twin galaxies website and there's the the two books the score books that he's released and but it all started with the actual physical arcade and the physical arcade was located in Ottumwa, iowa and that happened to be my hometown so he opened the arcade there in 1982 i believe or maybe late 81 i didn't even know about it for a while um i was into bmx you know, i played video games at friends houses you know 2600 and stuff there were no arcades i didn't even know about it we go to the Skateland, the local roller skating rink a lot and they had all night skates and they had foosball and pinball and you know video games are starting to become a thing space invaders showed up and stuff like that and uh he opened the arcade down there and i was just this local kid you know all these classic gamers from the era that you've probably seen or heard of in some form or another you know billy mitchell with donkey kong and um, ben gold from that's incredible and all these great players, I still don't understand how it all happened to be in Ottumwa, Iowa myself, because this is, you know, way back before the internet. This was back before cell phones. If you called somebody, you were calling long distance on a landline and you were paying per minute. And, you know, most of us kids couldn't do that. Our parents would have kicked our butt. And how these people found Twin Galaxies across the country and then the players somehow had the money and convinced their parents to allow them to travel to Iowa just to play a video game. It's kind of kind of mind-boggling, you know, at the time. And me, I'm just the local kid on the bike that ends up going in the arcade and meeting all these players. And at the time, I had no idea where our lives were going to take us. You know, how some of mm -hmm. us became famous or semi-famous or known or whatever term you'd like to attach to it. You know, to me, it was just, hey, there's Billy. There's, there's Ben. You know, I knew Ben was from Texas. I knew Billy was from Florida. And that was about all I knew about them. They were here playing video games. And, wow, these guys are pretty good. And, uh, and so how long were you, so you said that was in 83. So I guess, yeah. and you got your first, the, you, you hit that, that mark, that first billion point player mark only like a year later. And not even a year later. Um, <laughs> the, the life magazine photo was in November of 82 and I didn't even really know about it. I, I knew about it, but I hadn't been there. The reason I knew about it was. My cousin, Michael Buck, was uh, a world-class carnival player, the video game Carnival, and he's actually in the photo. And he kept telling me about it. Oh, there's this Twin Galaxies arcade. You need to come down sometime. We need to go play games. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have time for that. I'm riding my bike. I got to practice. I got a race coming up. And uh, BMX was consuming me at the time. That was the, the big thing at the time for a lot of us local kids. I grew up in the 70s watching Evil Knievel on TV doing his crazy jumps on his motorcycle and stuff. And when I got my first bike, well, I was Evil Knievel. You know, I could go out and <laughs> we weren't getting even two feet off the ground, but it felt like Evil Knievel. You know, you could pop a wheelie and ride a wheelie and go over a little ramp or something. And, and then when racing actually started, that just kind of consumed me for quite a while. So then he kept saying, you need to come down. This place is cool. It's got all these games. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll sometime, sometime. <laughs> and then it, it finally happened. I finally happened to, you know, go down there. And, and that's when I started meeting some of these players. And it's like, oh, this place is pretty cool. But the, the funny thing is people have these different notions of what Twin Galaxies was. And based on some of the articles or interviews I've heard or read, stuff like that, that, you know, I think people romanticize about it, about being some like, you know, just mega huge arcade, like, you know, like a Walmart shopping center size or Target or whatever, you know, this big, huge place. And it wasn't. 
it was just this really small building, downtown Main Street, Ottumwa, really in kind of inconspicuous other than the logo, you know, on the front of the building. Mm -hmm. It didn't really see a whole lot till you went inside and there was, I believe, 24 games. So, I mean, that's, that's not real small, but it's not anywhere near as big as what I think some people envisioned it as being. Um, if you had somebody in there on the majority of the games, like, you know, say 14, 16 of the games were being played at any given time, it was kind of crowded. You know, people were putting their quarters up and waiting their turns, stuff like that. But it was, it was a cool place at a cool time. It wasn't too far from the high school. So a lot of times uh, the bus downtown kids, a lot of the town kids had to ride the bus to the south side or wherever. <laughs> the The bus didn't leave right away. So everybody just really haul ass down to the um, down to the arcade as quick as they could and run in and play a few games and stuff like that before their bus left. And um, lunchtime, you'd have a few kids that would sneak off, run down to the arcade, play a couple quick games, run back up to the school, stuff like that. Sorry for the swearing. I don't know if your shows are um, rated or not. I'll try to keep it clean. Um, no, it's okay. Some people do. Some people don't. I usually just go. I personally swear quite a bit. Um, but if the people I'm interviewing don't swear, I usually just don't. So it doesn't crazy. offend me, but I try to you know, kind of tone it to who I'm talking to and for the show that we're on type of thing. But uh, the people I work with are great. But there's a few of us that, you know, we've known each other for a while and we get a little looser with the language. <laughs> Maybe we should, you know, in a work environment and um, not being home that long. You know, some of that might come out. So no, for sure. And I, so what do you do day to day? I know this is really off topic from what we were just talking about, but. Okay, if you remember the movie toward the end of it, it showed me at a machine and there was this little arm that was moving, had a little probe on it that was touching parts. Mm -hmm. um, it's called a CMM. It's a coordinate measuring machine. And my job's the quality coordinator. And what that machine does is I write the programs for it, tell it where to move and where to touch the different parts. And then based on what I've programmed it to touch, I can have it give me different dimensions. Mm. It can tell me like the area from a surface to another surface or the size of a diameter, different things like that. So that's a lot of my job is uh, writing and maintaining the CMM programs and doing daily part inspections. I work for a company called AY McDonald. It's uh, over 160 year old family owned company, fifth generation family. And I'm the, the quality coordinator at their Albia facility. And we make gas products. If you look on the outside of your house or business and there's a gas meter, the bar that supports it and the mm. valve that turns the service on and off, if it says MCD, that actually came from the building that I work in. And there's there's really three big companies in the entire country that make those kind of products. So we've, we've got a pretty good coverage across the United States. Wow. So the, the odds are you might have some of our products on the outside of your house. Wow. It's kind of neat. I didn't know... <laughs> Before I took the job, I didn't even know what the company was. I was working at another place, and one of the guys I was... No, I was going to say, yeah, the, the job switch seemed like a... It was between world record attempts, right? It was during the whole thing. Yeah. Um, let's see, I start, we started doing the documentary in 2007, and we finished it, uh, it was like 2014, I think, is when we wrapped up the filming. Oh, wow. And I changed jobs in 2010. It was about eight years begin from the first time the cameras rolled until we had the screening in Austin, Texas. It was about an eight-year time span. Wow. It, it doesn't seem like in the film, but if you think back to the film, a lot of the film, I had really long hair, and at the end, I didn't. Yeah. Um, the, any of the footage with the shorter hair was after the job change. I cut four... 14 inches of my hair off when I interviewed for the new job because it was an office position. Oh, wow. And so you and Dwayne Richard 
both had a haircut by the end of the show. Yeah, Dwayne's, uh, <laughs> he's re, uh, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for. He's, he's uh, had several different looks over the years. <laughs> he's quite he's got the, the character. <laughs> um, okay. Sorry. That was like an off topic. I meant to no, ask, I was going to ask about that anyway. Um, so, uh, so the time picture you were explaining, um, when the time photo came uh, out and then it was the time frame in which she started going to twin galaxies and then got the world record. It was actually life magazine um, or life magazine. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they took the photo. I know it was November. I don't remember if it was 81 or 82 since I wasn't there. I want to say it was 82, but it came out in the middle of the year and it was uh, life magazine year and photos. And that particular magazine, when you opened it, the, the very center of the magazine was a two page photo. And that was the, the picture from twin galaxies had all the arcades out in the street and all the players were there and stuff. It's, it's a pretty famous picture now, you know, everybody looks back on that and kind of says, Hey, that's when this started. This is when <laughs> arcade games kind of arrived type thing, I guess. And I, I missed that. My cousin was there and I, I came in just slightly after that, but the people that were there in that photo, a lot of them, when I started going to the arcade, especially like in summertime, you know, once school's out, you just see these players that were from out of state that were just always there. Walter had some, old beds in the back room. There's just some mattresses on the floor. People would come and try to set records. And if they, especially like a marathon game, if they failed or came up short, they'd, they're so tired. They never left the building. They just went in the back and pretty much face planted, plopped down on the mattress and they were out. A lot of the kids stayed there at the arcade. Walter hosted them when they came to, came to Iowa to go for those records. Wow. And so would you say that there was a kind of like a, a, a what is the word I'm looking for? People went there to marathon games specifically to try and hit those world records? Absolutely. Um, that time period for Twin Galaxies in Atumwa, they, they refer to it, Walter especially refers to it as the Dodge City of video games. Um, pretty much anybody that was anybody that wanted to kind of make a name for themselves. Like I said, remember, this was pre-internet and there just there wasn't a lot of stuff out there yet. And, and this was there. And it was in, if you look at the map, you know, Iowa is kind of central, you know, there's, there's a lot north, there's a lot south, there's a lot east, there's a lot west. So being centrally located in the United States, it allowed, I think, more people to come. Whereas if, if they'd been, you know, in Florida, maybe, or Texas or California, um, you might not have had a people coming from the east coast to go to California, you know, stuff like that. Where Iowa being closer, they had, you know, people come up from North Carolina and players coming up from Texas and Florida and some of the guys from California came out and stuff like that. I remember a lot of kids saying, wow, this is snow. I've never seen snow before. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it does it every winter. You, you don't really think about it, you know, because you're used to it your whole life. And uh, I, I introduced a few of them to snowball fights and how to make a snowball and stuff like that. It was crazy. Oh, Wow. So would you say that many people were attempting world records on Nibbler specifically? Um, I'd like to tell you it was really popular, but I'd be lying to you. Uh, it wasn't a really highly produced game. And when I say highly produced, I mean, they didn't make a lot of them. I don't know what the raw numbers were, but I mean, there was nowhere near as many Nibblers made as like, say, a Pac-Man or a Space Invaders or something like that. The company that made Nibbler was Rockola, and they were a really small company. Um, well, maybe that's not exactly true. As it relates to video games, they were a really small company. Rockola is known for jukeboxes. They've made jukeboxes for, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 years. I'm not really sure. I haven't really studied that history of the company. But they 
they were in Chicago and video games were the thing. And that was really the heartbeat of the video game world. You know, almost everything came out of Chicago. That's where the, the companies were headquartered and based. So Rock Ola, they branched out and they got into video games. And one of the things they did, not being a big company, they couldn't necessarily afford all the R&D is like, you know, an Atari or a Bally or a Midway or somebody like that. So if somebody had a, a run of games and they made a bunch of cabs and the game didn't do as well as they expected, they had all these leftover machines in warehouses. Well, Rockola would kind of swoop in and buy them as a lot, you know, get them really cheap. And then they would literally take the machines and go, okay, this is what's inside of them. Now, what can we do with that hardware? <laughs> And then they would try to code a program, a game, to run on the hardware that they just purchased, not even really truly knowing what they had until they had their hands on it. And Nibbler itself, when it hit, it was still fairly early on. But even then, even in 1982, the two guys that programmed it, they already thought video games were becoming too violent. Kids were going to the arcade to kill things. You're going to kill the aliens. You're going to shoot the enemy, you know, stuff like that. So they didn't like that idea. You know, they already thought at that time games were violent. So they started out to make Nibbler and they did it. They wanted to be a passive game where there was no enemies on the screen. There was nothing that was trying to kill you or nothing you were trying to kill. It was just kind of you against the machine. So they, they came kind of came up with a neat concept for its time and it wasn't super popular. Um, I'd love to tell you that, yeah, I'd be, you know, 10,000 players, but didn't happen. Um, Thomas Saki, as I mentioned, the players came to Otomo to, to attempt these records Tomasaki was from Montana, and he's the one that came up with the quest to be the first person to get the billion. It was his idea. He started playing it, and he came to Otumwa to attempt it, and Walter ended up getting a nibbler just for Tom's attempt. I'd never seen it. I'd never heard of it. I walked into the arcade, and there's Tom playing, and there's a bunch of people watching, and I didn't know Tom. He was a new guy. You know, He wasn't Billy Mitchell or Ben Gold or, or who have you, you know. This was a new unknown that I'd never seen before, and I didn't understand why everybody was watching him. And I kind of crept up and stood there and I said, you know, basically like the doc cartoon segment shows, what's the big deal. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I didn't realize what I was actually seeing yet. And everybody told me, well, he's been playing for, you know, 35 hours. And I looked at the score again. I was like, Oh crap, that's 700 million. When I first glanced at it, I just did a quick glance. It's like 700,000. I thought, and then I realized, you know, what his score was. And they were saying, Oh, he's trying to be the first person to get a billion. And, I, I don't remember what all I said. I know I said something about, well, I'll beat your score anyway. Cause I was, that was just me. That was my nature. I always talk trash, you know, I'm, I don't care what you get. I'll get a hundred points more than you. I'll get a thousand points more than you. I'm going to beat you. And, uh, his game ended. And when it ended, I was there and I did, I put a quarter in and started playing it. It looked neat. It was a new game. It was the newest game in the arcade. Tom had just had a big crowd watching him. This, he's been playing it for two days. It looked fun. It looked fast. So that's what got me playing it. And really, sadly, the truth is it was really just me and Tom. There wasn't, we had some local kids, um, Sean Turner and Mark Hoff. They actually had worked at Twin Galaxies at different times. And they were friends of mine from high school. The three of us got playing it a lot where we'd put a quarter in and we all started getting good at it. And we would just switch off. You know, one of us would play for a while, get, I don't know, I don't, not not hundreds of millions, but millions of points. We'd build up some extra lives and then, you know, that person would step aside and then the other one would jump on and play for 20, 30 minutes and then they'd step off and then the other one would jump on. Stuff like that. We'd put a quarter in it. We could make the quarter last all day between the three of us. And I was actually at the time, I was the third best player in town. Mark Hoff and Sean Turner both got better, faster at it than I did. Just neither one of them had any interest at all in doing a marathon. 
And then that goes back to Walter again. Walter always encouraged players. You know, he, he made it sound so mythical. You know, you'd be the first person to get a billion points on a video game. It's never been done. It's like the first guy that ran the sub four minute mile or the first person that climbed Everest. It doesn't matter if you get beat or how many times you get beat or how much it gets beat by. You will always be the first, you know, just to him. And he got excited about it. Imagine, I mean, picture Walter. And picture him really genuinely being super excited. You know, he kind of had the twinkle in his eye and Aww. just his mannerisms. He's, it's like, it'd be so neat to see the first billion point game, you know. And he just, it's like, yeah, yeah, that would be cool. You're 15 years old. And you got this guy telling, yeah, do it. Go for it. I'll stay open. I'll let you stay here. You'll be the first. It'll be, you know, it's like, all right, cool. I'll I'll try. <laughs> Right. Well, and it's also that he's saying, I, you know, I think you can, I think, you know, the fact he was telling you that yeah. he thinks you can is so empowering, especially as a kid. Oh yeah. Your, your teachers might not always have believed in you. Maybe you didn't have the best grades or maybe you weren't the best athlete or, you know, whatever it was. And here's Walter. He's kind of a parental figure. He's not really old. He's, I think he's in his thirties at that point. I mean, he's an adult, but he's still a kid, you know, he's, he's into the video games, which is why he opened the arcade. And he's super supportive because that was, even then, that was pretty rare. There's a couple local arcades besides Twin Galaxies. There's one called The Hole. And the reason it had the name is, is you went in the door and it was a platform and then you actually went downstairs. It was like below street level. It was a basement type shop. It's kind of a neat place. It was really, it was ideal for an arcade because it was dark. Since it was downstairs, the only light was through the door that was upstairs. So you went downstairs, it's like you're going down into this hole, into this cave. It's really dark, and there's all these bright video games. Well, it was kind of a neat place, but the owner there wasn't supportive like Walter. So if you got good at one of their games, and they never had nibblers, so I didn't really run into that there. But I've seen other players on other games, and I'd done it on nibbler in other areas where you went into an arcade, you put a quarter in, you played for a half hour to an hour or whatever it was, and you'd have people watching you. There'd be quarters up on the screen, people waiting their turn. And quite literally, the arcade owner would walk over and either turn the power machine to the machine off or you'd unplug it and plug it back in. A couple times I got told, well, you got your 25 cents, move along. Wow. They, they would boot you off the machine. Well, there's no sign that says, you know, 25 cents gets you 15 minutes or half. You know, there's nothing like that. But I mean... As a kid, you looked at him and you're like, wow, that guy's kind of an asshole. But I, I mean, you look back on it now as an That's adult. generous. And, and yeah, you understand that, you know, this was a business. The guy made money by people putting money in these machines. And if I could put a quarter in it and I tied it up for hours on end, he didn't make very much money that day. And there was, there was days that Walter only made 25 cents on Nibbler the entire day that the arcade was open. So the power running the machine he made 25 cents on that game that day or 50 cents on that game that weekend. Cause I monopolized it, but he allowed that. And a lot of arcade owners wouldn't, they wouldn't support you. They wouldn't encourage you. They wouldn't allow it. So he was, he was really unique in that aspect. Wow. I honestly had never even considered the, that people marathoning like that would, you know, ultimately be a loss of profit for them. You know, oh, it's yeah. just like a, I never even considered that. Yeah, you think of all the machines in an arcade that are drawing power anyway. And the idea of the games at the time was take money from your pocket. That was the programmer's goal was to make it flashy enough, splashy enough, attractive enough, whatever, to get your attention, to make you go, ooh, that looks neat. I want to play it. So the first challenge for them was to get you to notice it and actually want to put money in it. 
And then the second challenge for him was to give you enough to make you want to play it again, but not give you enough where you can sit and play it all day. And since video games were so new, they hadn't really experienced how good some players could be at some titles. So it was it was new for them, too. You know, so as games went on, games became harder. Um, some of them had continues. Some of them took more than a quarter. They, they figured out ways to compensate for these players. Some games had timers like the Nintendo versus system. It had timer. You put money in and it only let you play for a certain amount of time. And then you were done no matter how good you were. So it was all new. The industry had to learn how to adapt and how to change and how to try to be profitable. Wow. And, um, and so really any day, any quarter could have been the marathon. Yeah. Yeah, it could have. Um, I mean, within reason, you you probably weren't going to start a marathon on Wednesday. You know, if you're you're going to school, maybe Friday night, um, ideally you want to start a marathon in the morning. You wanted to do it on a two or at least a two day weekend, which is kids. We always had a two day weekend. You know, nobody went to school. The holidays were the big ones, you know, uh, Memorial Day, Labor Day, Easter weekend. A lot of times people have Friday off and, you know, there's no school or no class or whatever. And you had to be able to fit it in the time frame. And then the the arcade owner had to be willing, you know, so you couldn't just do it anytime. It just depends on how long your game was potentially going to last. And if you're going to play for two days, you kind of got to schedule it a little bit. But like, if you were going to do Donkey Kong, I mean, if you were out of school on Friday afternoon, you might go down to the arcade and have a good game. And, you know, Donkey Kong game, six hours, maybe you start at three in the afternoon, you're done at nine o'clock at night. That's not quite as big a deal. Marathons was a little bit more involved than that. You kind of had to plan a little bit better. Wow. And, um, and so uh... Was there anything about the actual billion point game that was different than um, the games you had played previously? You know, you mentioned that you and your friends would swap out. Was this just a day that you and your friends didn't swap out? Well, the swapping out would be more like, well, we only got a quarter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, you wanted to practice. But like when, you know, a lot of us kids weren't really, I, I won't say we were poor because we weren't really poor, but we didn't have a lot of extra cash either, you know, um, having a couple dollars to go to the arcade and waste in the arcade machines was more of a treat back then than a, you know, well, here, go to the arcade. Here's your built-in babysitter. Here's $5. Go play games. A lot of parents didn't have that money, you know, or wasn't willing to give it up just to go drop money in these stupid video games, you know? Uh, So we'd, we'd switch off because of that. But as for the marathon, uh, I tried several times and come up short for various reasons, um, I know there was one, I think I got around 400 million and the joystick quit working and it, it, it didn't totally quit, but I mean, it's a four way joystick. You're going up, down, left, and right. And if I remember right, it just, it wouldn't go down anymore. I could go left, right, <laughs> and up, but it wouldn't go down. And it was in the middle of the night and Walter had actually went home. So he, he wasn't even in a tumble. He was in Fairfield. He would lock the arcade because there was certain people, most of us, he would trust at that level that he knew we weren't going to tear stuff up. We weren't going to let anybody in. And the arcades had push doors where you could push the bar and you could leave. But once the door shut, you couldn't get back in. So if we wanted to leave and go home, we weren't locked in, but nobody else was coming in. And, you know, that was understood. The people that he left there wasn't going to let anybody in, stuff like that. Maybe a parent, you know, if something had come up and a parent had came down, but we weren't just going to open the door and let somebody walk in. So this was in the middle of the night. He was home in Fairfield and there was no arcade tech there. And none of us had keys to the machine. None of us would have known what to do to fix it anyway. So it was just, well, I guess I'm going home. See you guys. You know, um, there was a kid from high school that we always joked that he, he was a few beers short of a six pack. 
he's kind of crazy. And he come in one night and he's watching me. And he's standing there and he just looks at him and he goes, I think I'm going to unplug your game. And I'm like, whatever. And poof, there goes the screen. He got behind a machine and unplugged it. A couple times, uh, it was time for the arcade wow. to close. And the arcade attendants would switch off banks of breakers that would shut off the majority of the machines. Because if we were going to be marathon overnight and there was only two or three machines that needed to be on, you know, why waste all the electricity? A couple times the wrong breaker got hit. So poof, there goes my game. Well, time to go home. Um, one game I actually got, I think, 716 million. And I just, it's 31 hours. That was the longest I'd ever played to that point. I, I ran out of lives. I got too tired and just couldn't keep the game going. So there, there was a number of attempts that came up short for whatever reason. And the, the one I actually got it, there was a big event that weekend. Um, I can't think of what they called it. It was it was to honor other gamers, like for Gamers of the Year. Um, Tim Collum came from Texas, and Billy Mitchell was there from Florida. Those were two of the people that were honored as co-players of the year. Ben Gold was one of the ones that came from Texas. He was being honored. And the events ran Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And they decided that Sunday everybody was going to start a marathon. We're going to start at noon. Well, a few of us went out and had a few drinks, even though we were underage and shouldn't have been doing those kind of things. We still did sometimes. And uh, had a few beers that we should have. And (laughs) was out a little later than we should have been. And I was one of them. As most teenagers do and are. Oh, yeah. Got up the next day and I was like, crap it's afternoon i was supposed to start my marathon i jumped on my bike and rode down to the arcade and <laughs> there was three of us that were going to do marathons tom galt was playing cubert chris emery was playing joust and i was supposed to be playing nibbler and they had them set up that way joust was on the right cubert was on the left and nibbler was in the middle so i walk into the arcade and they're already you know two hours in because it was almost two o'clock in the afternoon i didn't see walter so i just kind of quietly just walked through and went back and put the quarter in and started thinking nobody noticed it you know <laughs> i'm 15 you Nobody noticed, right? Yeah, they noticed. <laughs> but, uh, that was, but you'd already put the quarter in, yeah. so... Uh, he would have let me play anyway, but we were supposed to all start at the same time, and, and that was it. I mean, because I had a player on each side of me, I think, helped a lot. It carried me through the early part of the game. I wasn't as tired. Not only was I playing and, you know, trying to do my own thing, but I had two people that were doing the same thing on different games, so... We had people to talk to and I could, you know, kind of glance over and watch them a little bit when I was taking a break or something. It just, it made it less boring and it just made it time go faster. It just seemed easier Yeah. until it got down to the end and I was the only one left. And then that kind of sucked. <laughs> um, did the other two achieve anything um, from their didn't. marathons? They didn't. Um, Chris Emery on Joust, I think he just really wanted to quit, but he didn't want to be the guy that says, oh, screw it. I quit. You know, you don't. You don't want to let Walter down. Walter's invited you to the arcade. He came all the way down from Canada. You know, it cost oh, wow. money to get there. And he didn't want to just tell his parents, well, I just went down there and I played and I had enough and I quit. You know, you don't want to do that. So his excuse was on Joust, it's a Williams game. You can't see how many lives you have. I think it shows six or eight on screen. I'm not really sure. I haven't played mm-hmm. Joust for a while. But that's all you see. And you can get up to 255. So he's 20 some hours in and he just decides he's going to start killing his lives off. I'm like, what are you doing? And he says, well, I want to know how many I have. I'm like, but you're wasting. He goes, I'm okay. He says, I'll get down there and then I'll know how many I have. And then I'll start counting them and I'll keep track. And uh, I kind of suspected that's what he was doing, but he, he got down to where he could see how many he had like five left. And then it was kind of like, Oh crap. I died. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. And the next thing you know, his game's over. And he's like, well, I guess that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> he was done. <laughs> 
And the other guy, Tom uh-huh. Gall, uh, he was playing Cuber, and he was he was really good, and he was really trying. He he didn't want to quit. He was going for it. Cubert, if you're familiar with it, it's the three dimensional cubes that are different colors, and they mm-hmm. change every level. I've actually I've actually interviewed the guy who um, created Cubert. Oh, okay. So it's so that it's really interesting to hear you talk about somebody marathoning it because I've only really talked about it with in the context of it being made. You know, that game just wrecks your eyes. The the, the <laughs> colors, especially when you get tired. And him being on the left of me, there was a couple times I was you know just out the corner of my eye, I can see him playing. I'm like, how did Kubert get on the sides of the cubes? And he goes, what? I said, Kubert, he's on the side of the cube. No, well now he's on the bottom of the cube, and he's looking at me like are you stunned or something? You know, cause you, it's on top. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, from where I'm sitting, he's on the bottom of the cubes. He just thought I was nuts. And then, you know, five, 10 hours later, he's going, it's on the bottom and I don't know how to get it back on top. And I'm laughing at him and going, wow, we're oh, getting really man. tired. And I, I've told people, if I ever do a marathon live at an event somewhere, I don't want a cuber anywhere inside of my peripheral vision. I do not want to see that game while I'm playing. It's a great game. I love the game, but when you've been up for 30 some hours, oh, it's it's just brutal. I don't know how those guys marathon that game. I, I would I can, be cross-eyed, bug-eyed. I, I, oh, wow. It's just crazy. Oh, my gosh. I could see how it could, it could like, really fuck like it become like an optical illusion yep. though because oh man they did an iron so, oh go ahead i'm sorry no no you go ahead they did a they called it the iron man 2 contest because they did an iron man contest in i think it was 1985 up at johnny z's up in canada and the idea being uh somebody they got somebody to put up ten thousand dollars if anybody could play a hundred or a hundred hours they would win ten thousand dollars nobody achieved it i think the longest anybody played was 67 and a half hours i believe well, anyway, they did a, a second one in a tum one late 2011, and Rick Carter was there. He played Cubert. I was playing Nibbler. Um, Joel West was playing, I want to say Berserk. It was Berserk or Frenzy. I don't remember. Kelly Tharp was there. He was playing Mousetrap. Greg Lau was there. He was playing Kicker. Um I'm forgetting a couple of people, I'm sure. And I apologize if you guys hear this. My memory's not as good as it should. But, but anyway, it came down to the final three was uh, me, Greg, and Rick. We were the final three. And I had been sitting on the stool, or I'd been standing up, and I went to sit down on the stool, and my knee banged the coin door, and my maze shifted. Like the entire grid, the dots stayed where they were, but the actual borders of the screen shifted about an inch upward. Oh, and, you could still eat the dots and you were actually running through the walls. It still played normal, but it looked weird because the walls were in the wrong place, but you could run through them. And I, I just, I couldn't maintain. I, I, my game ended a short while after that. And, uh, we went home, we loaded up the machine, went home, went to bed and we come back the next day and we found out that Greg had ended his game throughout the night and he ended up second and Rick Carter was the only one left. So when we go into the room, he's the only one in the room. There's nobody bothering him we left at about 32 hours. We went home, went to sleep. So it was probably about 45, 50 hours somewhere in there by the time we went back and saw Rick and there's nobody in the room and I didn't want to bother him because it's quiet and he's been playing for a while. So I just, I walked back by him and I got a chair and I sat three or four feet behind him and kind of off to the right. And I was just sitting there watching him play and he's streaming and I'm listening to him talk to people like there's people watching and I glance at the screen and he's got zero viewers so there's nobody on there. There's nobody typing questions to him or anything, but he's talking he's having a conversation with somebody. I still don't know who it was, but uh, <laughs> and he's talking. And I remember him saying something about the damn tree and the leaves. And I'm looking at Cuber going, 
there's snow tree and leaves. What, what the hell is he seeing? And I didn't bother him. You know, this is, like I said, this is 50 some hours into the game. I'm not going to bother him. I watched him for a while and then I left the room and went and did other things at the event. Well, when we got ready to go home that night, he's still playing. So we went ahead and we went home and went to sleep the second night. We go back the next day and he's done. He's been done and he's went and got some sleep. Later in the afternoon, he gets up and he comes back to the venue and we we all decide we're going to go out and eat. So we're out to dinner. We're all eating and uh, we got our food or we're waiting on our food, one or the other. And I asked him, I said, oh, I got a question for you, Rick. He says, what's that? I said, do you remember me being there watching you at any point last night? He goes, you came back after you left? And I said, mm-hmm. the next day, he goes, I remember you playing and something happened and you left and then you were here today. And I'm like, okay, I kind of thought so. I said, I got a question for you though. I said, I was watching you play for a while and I said, you kept talking about a tree and branches. I said, what? And leaves. I said, what were you talking about? What were you seeing? He goes, oh, the tree. He says, well, I'm playing. And he says, the bottom two rows of the cubes are there. And then it goes into the tree trunk and the tree trunk goes up. And then there's all these branches and the leaves and the rest of the cubes are up in the trees. They're on the limbs. And I, I couldn't figure out how to get from the cubes and get up that damn tree trunk to get to the branches to get to the rest of the cubes. And he's telling me this, like, this is what was really there. You know, it's like, this was there. This is what I saw. And I'm going, you realize there's no tree. He goes, yeah, I know that now. <laughs> And he just he starts laughing. He goes, but that's where my head was. He goes, I couldn't figure out how to get up that damn tree. And I, I can relate. I remember I told a few people that when I got that first billion and is getting close, Walter called the TV stations and the news crew showed up and they had bright lights in there, you know, it had been dark all night and they're setting up these backlights and their cameras and everything. And it was just, it was a glare on the screen. It was just, it was brutal. It was just killing me. And I'd never been awake that long doing anything, let alone playing a video game, you know, over 44 hours. And where my head was, was the the nibbler screen was a rug on the floor. And all the croutons, I, I know they're called croutons now. Back as a kid, they were called dots. All the dots on the on the rug were crumbs. And somebody was walking around on my rug and they were dropping all these damn crumbs. And nibbler was a vacuum cleaner. The snake, when it starts off really small, was the vacuum cleaner. And as I was going around the rug, vacuuming up all these damn crumbs somebody keeps dropping, as my snake grew longer, the tail was actually my extension cord of my vacuum cleaner. I was leaving trail behind me as as I vacuumed up all the crumbs. It just, sleep deprivation. It just does really crazy things. It's kind of fun in a way, but it's, it's weird. You don't really realize it when you're in it, but then when you think back later, it's like, the hell was wrong with me where did i get a vacuum cleaner out of that but it seems like it's it's like when dreams when you wake up or like you know in your dream state everything seems like it makes sense even if it absolutely does not make any sense yeah at one point i just went to scream who keeps dropping these damn crumbs (laughs) you know it was i just cleaned this rug and now it's dirty again It, it was crazy and so you said there was this news crew. So you finish. So how how are you? How do you handle the excitement that everybody else has, just absolutely destroyed and exhausted after this marathon? I'm watching the score. And it's it's like creeping closer and closer to the billion. And then finally I hit it, and it just rolls over, and it, it basically resets your score. All that time, all that work, all that effort, this huge number, you know, nine digits. And then poof, it's gone. There's five digits. It's like you didn't even do it. But when that hit, when that rolled, I was like, finally, I got it. I can go to bed. And I mean, literally, at that point, I just stopped. 
achievement done. I was the first and I wasn't even thinking that, you know, at that point, it's just like, I'm done. I got it. And I stood up and I turned around. And I walked out of the arcade. That was it. <laughs> there was no excitement. It was relief. It's like, I want to go home and go to bed. That was all I could think of. I just want to lay down. And that was it. Turned around, walked out, left and went home. And, uh, so after get after this, I mean, and it's a really big deal what you did. You know, the first billion points achieved in a in a video game. Um, they, but they, your town Otomo is or is it Otomo or Otomo? Otomo. I'm not gonna say it right, no matter how many times I try. <laughs> Um, That's fine. It's like a, I can see it in my head, but no. So, so everybody's so excited that they give you a key to the city, and they yeah. create Tim McVeigh Day. And uh, I mean, how yeah, does Walter that feel? Was, uh, Walter is at that time he was like Barnum and Bailey or something. He was like the ringleader of the circus, and he had a way of talking to the local newspaper and TV stations and the politicians and stuff. And he just, he could make something out of nothing. I mean, he literally could have sold snow to Eskimos at that point. He was so good at what he did. And at the time, like I said, I was, I was 16 when I finally got the record, 15 when I went there, 16 when I got the record. And, you know, like, like I said earlier, Walter made it sound so big, you know, the first person, you know, they'll remember you forever. And it sounded so cool being 16. And I look back on it now, and I mean, I'm proud of it because I, I had a goal and I worked towards it and I finally achieved it, you know, and I, I'm proud of that. It, it took some took some practice, took some time, took some dedication. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a number on a video game screen. Mm -hmm. And and the part that has never escaped me from then until now is where was the, the mania about the first million points? You know, what? what happened, what created the first billion points? Nobody knows who the first million point player was. Nobody knows who the first trillion point player was or, you know, any other big number. I can't tell you another player that achieved another score just based on a milestone like that. You know, not that they got the record, but that they, they hit a certain threshold for a score. I don't remember anybody before or after it being a big deal. So I don't know why that one was. I'm glad it was. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm proud of it. Definitely. And uh, it's it's been interesting because, you know, I, I it was something I did 25 years ago when the stock started. And uh, Walter had contacted me and asked me if he could give my contact info. A couple guys were interested in interviewing me for maybe possibly doing a documentary. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Okay. You know, <laughs> just not just thinking, oh, this is Walter. He's making something bigger than it really is. You know, who cares about that? That was 25 years ago. And uh, they didn't call me for a while. You know, he gave them the info apparently. And it was, it was actually like several months later when they had the time or got, got around to starting the project or however you want to look at it. I'm not sure what the story was there, but by the time they finally contacted me from when he asked me, you know, some time had passed to the point that when they called me and they, they said who they were and why they were calling, I'm like, wait a minute, you're who you're what? And I almost forgot, you know, Walter had said it and it took me a minute for it to kick in and go, Oh yeah, you're the guys that Walter asked. Okay. I thought it was a prank phone call at first. <laughs> and uh, at the time, so the way this all came to be for a documentary, um, they had a main machine in their lounge out in Hollywood. They work in Hollywood. They work on uh, Battlestar Galactica was one of the shows they'd worked on. Wow. Eureka was another one. And they were editors. They were film editors. And they, they snuck a main arcade machine into the lounge out there. And when they had downtime or they're waiting st for stuff to render and they had some free time, 
couple of them would get in there and they'd have friendly little competitions on the games. And they didn't really know any of the games specifically. They just kind of worked their way down the list, you know. And some point in time, they stumbled across Nibbler. And the two people that did the film were Andrew Seckler and Tim Kinsey. And I think if I remember right, they said Tim was the one who got the high score. He got, how ironic, Tim. Um, <laughs> so he gets like 400,000. They're like, wow, holy crap. He got 400,000 on that. That's really impressive. I wonder what the world record is. So they Googled it or binged it or whatever they did to, to stumble across it. And they found Twin Galaxies. And they saw the billion points and their eyes about popped out of their head. They're like, uh, that can't be right. Somebody fat fingered that. There's an extra zero or, or two or three or something. And they ended up sending an email at the time, Walter owned Twin Galaxy's website. So they sent the email and Walter was the one that got it. So they're like, this Nibbler score, this, this billion point score, that's not real, right? That didn't really happen. And Walter's like, oh, yeah, it happened. It was in my arcade. I saw it. I was there when it happened. <laughs> and they, they were just, you know, just nonchalantly because he, you know, imagine all the records Walter's actually witnessed over the years. Yeah. And uh, they're just like, oh, my God, that's real? So I think they had seen King of Kong at this point, mm-hmm. and they they just for some reason they were attached to the story they were blown away about the billion i think walter probably hyped it up a little bit maybe (laughs) the first billion point games and we had tim mcveigh day and i don't know what he told them but you know walter like i said he was he's a hell of a salesman hell of a showman and uh so it got him excited and they decided they wanted to do at the time it was supposed to be just a short form documentary they wanted to get a hold of me and the only thing it was about was me getting the first billion point game all those years ago it was the original intention was a 10 15 minute short form documentary straight to youtube and that was it well they came out they interviewed they took pictures of some of the stuff we had from back in the day some of the newspaper articles and old childhood pictures and you know whatnot and um and then they left and they they got to working on it to begin with and they weren't sure how to end it and Walter was going to a, uh, an event out in Chicago in 2008 called VGS, the Video Game Summit. And I don't know whose idea it was, but, you know, Walter was in contact with him. Somebody decided that I never actually had a Twin Galaxies certificate for getting the world record. So the, somehow they came to a decision. They, they, they decided that Walter was going to invite me and Tina to this event. And Walter was going to present me with a certificate for the score. And Tim Kinsey was able to fly in to Chicago and he showed up before they presented it. He came in, had a camera, filmed it and everything. And when he left, that was supposed to be how the documentary ended. That was supposed to be the end of it. And Tina and I had rode with Walter. Walter drove from Fairfield. We drove down to Walter's house and he drove to Chicago. Oh, wow. And uh, all the way back, you know, it's like a five-hour drive. And Walter, well, what, what about this? And what about that? Do you think you could still play it? Would you play it again? Do you think you could beat your score again? You know, just this conversation, just back and forth. And the conversation essentially ended, you know, pretty much when the trip ended with, well, I don't know, find me a machine. We'll find out. <laughs> I haven't seen a machine for 20 years. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be like riding a bike. I'll remember it like it was yesterday. Maybe I can't play it no more. I don't know. Got to find a machine. We'll figure it out. It's probably about a week, week and a half later, they get a hold of me. And uh, Tim and Andy had found a nibbler on the on eBay. And it as the story turns out and they show a little bit of it in the dock, it was actually one of the programmers that owned the machine. And I guess they contacted him, talked him into ending it early and they bought the machine, shipped it to me. And the thing just kind of took a life of its own. I started playing again and I told him about Dwayne and I told him about Rick and Elijah and told him about Tomasaki, 
told him about the guy in Italy, Enrico Zanetti. You know, did he break my score? Did he not break my score? Nobody seemed to really know. Twin Galaxies came back as a website in 96, 94, 96, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And when I looked, I had the record. But it was like a ghost site. There was nobody there. You'd go there day after day after day, and there was no new post. There was, it was just like a ghost website. Like nobody knew about it. And uh, so I just quit going there, forgot about it. And the next time I, I got bored one day, and a couple of years had passed, and I got it curious again. I looked it up, and I go to Twin Galaxies. I think it was like 98. And Enrico Zanetti had the score. I'm like, when did this happen? Why would somebody beat it now after all this time? And through all the course of all this, the long, the short version of the long story became Walter had acquired the rights to an Italian scoreboard and they merged all the scores in together and Enrico and had, had his score on that scoreboard. So when they merged them, he became the champion, even though he'd never submitted it to Twin Galaxies, they'd never viewed video or anything. Yeah. It, just, it was, here's a score on another scoreboard, bang, he's the champion. Well, as time went on, they started realizing that some of the scores were bogus and as more time went on, there was more and more scores that were bogus to the point where they got to, they finally just said, you know what? We can't really verify any of these actually happen. So they removed all of them and his score went away. So I'm the champion. I'm not the champion. Oh, look, I'm the champion again. <laughs> Why? You know? So when all this happened, I was like, I'll try to play again if I can. Then I can beat that score that he allegedly got. Whether he did or not, it won't matter because I'll have beaten it. And we'll we'll know once and for all that I have the record, you know. So that just set us down the path. And I, by this time, controversy had hit King of Kong. Um, the fact that they'd left out Tim Serby and he was the champion at the time. And they didn't even talk about him in the film. And, uh, you know, it's all kinds of stuff. And I didn't want it ours to be like that. I didn't want a bunch of people talking shit about it. I didn't want a bunch of bad feelings about it. So plus I, the originally Tim and Andy said, it's going to be called Nibbler, the Tim McVeigh story. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I just, I didn't like that name. And I mean, I love my name. I'm proud of it, but you know, come on, Oklahoma <laughs> city bomber, Timothy McVeigh, you know, Let's not have a movie called the Timothy McVeigh story. Come on. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. People are like, oh, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to be doing this interview, you know, tomorrow or this afternoon. They're like, oh, who are you interviewing? I'm like, oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so his name is Tim McVeigh and they always make a face, even though I know, and I know this is your wife. I'm just explaining my short experience when it's the life you live. Um, oh, I know. Trust me. <laughs> and they, they, I thought it was hilarious that they did, they, they paid homage to that in the, in the documentary. They're like, at, like yeah. people, they had like a montage of your friends and people yep. that know you. <laughs> Not the bomber. Really nice guy. <laughs> cracked me up the first time I seen it. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and so it's and, not been boring. And so the stuff with Enrique, that was uh, that was um, that was never actually intended to be in the sh in the documentary. Then no, um, oh, wow. see, I told him about all that, and it, it bothered me. It bugged me, you know. Yeah, and I think I think in the doc it showed uh, nobody knew. We couldn't verify it. How do you find somebody from Italy from twenty five years ago? And holy shit, Tim and Andy found somebody from Italy from 25 <laughs> years ago. You know, so that was cool. Job. <laughs> that was extremely cool. Um, that's the only real blowback I've caught from the movie at all. I mean, I've, the, the response to me, to my face, either online on social media or actually, you know, in a room or whatever, it's just been overwhelmingly positive, just blown away by the, the support and all the people that I've met and talked to because of it. But at that time, when it first came out, you know, there were some people, Oh, look, this, the fat man, the fat old American. And wow, that Italian would kick his butt. And I'm thinking, 
shit, I hope so. He's been an athlete his whole <laughs> life, you know. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. I was I, I broke my back in a car wreck in 1990, and that was the end of, of athleticism. Um, I wasn't that. overweight until then. But, you know, you break your back, and you're really kind of limited on the stuff you can do anymore. And I still – I ride bikes, but I can't jump. I can't do any freestyle stuff. I'd, I'd be scared to race. You know, you mm-hmm. wake up every day in pain just living. And without doing something like that. So that bothered me maybe a little bit, but it wasn't a big deal. I mean, I was happy for him. He looks like he has a great life and family and um, seems like a really cool guy. You know, I've never met him. The only thing that uh, that whole thing that bothered me at all really was some of the people, a few people on social media. And then his friends like, oh, the tiny town of Atumbo, Iowa. The, oh, yeah. man, they gave me the key to the city. That's like putting a man on the moon. I'm like. I know. I oh, you, guys, like you guys have no idea what what happened in a tumble, how big a tumble really was in yeah. the video gaming. They they didn't have any idea. Their perspective is so different, you know. And I felt like the the only thing in the whole documentary that bothered me was like that bit. I was like, that's so mean. Like, and I think that I don't see. I don't know at when in the production process that all that all took place. Like, if that was before they ended up validating his scores or not. Yeah, they validated his scores really late. We'd had this we would have had to seen all the raw footage. You know, we would have had more context, I think. We yeah. really didn't necessarily get that. And I think you're right. I think that was part of it because of that. And I was going to ask, you know, do you feel like you were uh, fairly portrayed in in the documentary, you know, do you feel like there was anything that wasn't portrayed? No, I'm pretty happy with like- it. I told Tim and Andy early on. I said uh, especially when they got to when they were editing. By the time they got to editing stage, they had over 500 hours of footage to try to turn into a 90 minute feature. Um, Cause they'd went up and they'd filmed Dwayne and they had some of his marathons and they'd been to my house a number of times. And then we both went out to Magfest and they went down to Florida and they talked to Billy and they went to Fairfield and they talked to Walter. And then they had the whole thing out in California with Dwayne's boards. And they had so much footage to wade through to try to do it. And back to that VGS in Chicago, when we wrote home with Walter and, you know, what if this, what if that, um, one of the questions that got asked when I was at that event, that was the first event I'd been to since I was a kid. And it wasn't directed at me, but Todd Rogers was there. And Todd was in the documentary, King of Kong. He's good friends with Billy Mitchell. And the people, one of the one of the questions mm-hmm. that got asked from the crowd was, how real was that? You know, was it really edited? Did they really try to push an agenda? You know, like Steve's the good guy, Billy's the bad guy, you know, whatever. And Todd was very diplomatic with his answer. And, it's, and that's why I remember it so clearly. He really kind of hit a really good answer and it was just really simple he says okay so he says let's say i have a script for a film and i make 11 copies of this script and i give it to 11 different directors and they go and they make their film he says what do you suppose the end result's going to be he says do you think i'll see 11 copies of the exact same film or do you think i'll see 11 totally different movies presented to me by the way the person with the script interpreted it and showed you what they chose to show you well, I think the logical answer is they're all going to be different, you know, unless they're working together, they're not going to know what the other guy's doing. Everybody interprets things differently. So Tim and Andy on this project, I said, I realize you have a shitload of video and there were some not so good moments and there were some good moments, you know, that happened along the way. And I said, I don't really care how you edit it. I said, but I hope you're honest with it, you know, because I heard a lot of people that were in King of Kong say they really kind of had an agenda. It seemed like they were really trying to push Steve and, you know, present some situations that didn't really happen and kind of take them out of context and make them look a certain way. I told Tim and Andy, I said, you've got enough footage. You can make me look like a really nice guy. If you choose to, you've got enough footage. You can make me look like a real asshole. If you choose to, 
I said, I don't care which way you go. I said, show me as being me because what you recorded was real. It really happened. I said, but please don't get creative and try to create something that didn't happen. I said, try not to make it into something that's not real. And that was my one big thing. I was hoping that they would present the truth, you know, what really happened. And I think they did a very good job of it. I, I mean, the first time I watched it, I hadn't seen it. We seen it at the premiere in Austin and Tim Kinsey was sitting next to me and he was more nervous than I was because, you know, here's, here's eight years of work and it's the first time anybody's seeing it in its entirety. And he's sitting next to me and I've never seen it because I kept begging and badgering, trying to get a copy of the damn thing. Cause I wanted to see it, you know, and uh, yeah, he was, definitely. he was more nervous than I was. And, you know, a couple of times he asked me, well, what you, how'd that work? What'd you think of that? And there was a couple little things here that I could have choked him for um, nothing major, but I, I and, and, Luckily enough, nobody really picked up on it, so it was all good. But there was a poster they showed early on, and it had a list of all these different scores. And I remember the original poster. And the poster they showed in the movie had my score with Nibbler on it. I wasn't on that poster. Um, Steve Sanders was, and he had a score on Donkey Kong at the time. It was $13 million, which was his fabricated score. But they edited it. I'm like, why did you guys do that? And Tim goes, oh, it just it seemed to fit better. And then the one I really wanted to choke him is Nibbler. Once mm. you get over a hundred lives, it shows double digit. It goes into codes. It's got like your, your 100 life, I think is uh FF. And I think one ones FF. It looks like hexadecimal, but it's not, it doesn't increment properly. If you know how to count and add and subtract in hexadecimal, but it uses the hexadecimal letters and numbers and stuff. Well, there was one shot in a film where they actually showed the score showing I had a hundred and some lives Instead of showing the codes like they should have been showed, they actually showed three digits for the lives. Um, and I'm like, what the hell did you do that for? And he goes, what? And I said, it actually shows I had a hundred and some lives. That's three digits. And he goes, well, the crowd would understand that better. I said, no, what's going to happen is some little twerp somewhere out on the internet's going to see that and go, oh, McVeigh's got some kind of a fake board that shows three digits. Nibbler don't show three digits. I'm like, you are going to bring so much shit down on me over that. And luckily it never happened. It probably will now after I'm talking about it on here. <laughs> but some Yeah, after you explain that I it know. was in a director's some of the, choice. The classic community <laughs> would be really anal about things. And that just jumped out at me. I was like, I can't yeah. believe you did that. That's gonna cause problems. And happily I was <laughs> extremely wrong. Tim thought it was hilarious. He's oh, they're not no, nobody's gonna pick up on it. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna choke you if they do. It's just stuff like that. There's a few things here and there, but I mean, I understood why they did it and it was kind of neat watching it, but I just was like, Oh, I don't want to deal with shit over that. Please don't make it, you know, don't turn that into something stupid. And, uh, but I think they did a pretty good <laughs> job with it. I mean, um, I don't really have anything to complain about. I mean, there were some surprises yeah. along the line. They, they had me in tears a couple times during the premiere. I mean, I assumed they had some of the footage of my mom in there, but I'd never seen it. They hunted oh. down and they found some of the actual footage from Tim McVeigh Day and they had footage of my mom and my mom passed away in 99. Oh. So I hadn't seen her, you know, hadn't heard her voice in years and didn't know. I, I was, like I said, I was pretty sure they had some of her in there, but I didn't know how much. I didn't know what. I didn't know where. I didn't know when. And you can you can know it's coming, but then when it's there, you just you know the emotions happen. Definitely, I'm like tearing up right now just thinking about it. I lost a parent when I was younger too, and so it's like I wouldn't even. It's like you you think you remember, and yeah. then you know. 
I had a, I, mean, I had tears rolled down my face, but I was smiling at the same time. I mean, it, it was a good cry, but you know, it was, it was awesome to see that they had yeah. found the footage. And then, and another mm-hmm. scene where they got me was my dog Parker when he was barking because uh, he's no longer with us. Uh, if you watched it through the credits, I asked him to put that in. Mm-hmm. I asked him to do that. I specifically wanted that, and they said, "Well, oh. Hollywood doesn't normally do that for pets." And I'm like, "Well, you're not Hollywood. <laughs> you're making this movie about." nibbler and it's mostly about me you know not to try to sound egotistical but the story started out being only about me you know and i didn't want it to be so i tried to get everybody that played the game that was still chasing the record trying to do it again i tried to get everybody on the on in the project and uh i said you know i'm asking you for a favor for all my time and everything that i've done for you guys i'm asking you to do this for me and i didn't know if they would and they did and i was really happy to see it in there um, I was difficult a few times. I know, um, the scene where I'm riding the BMX bike and I got the gray sweatshirt and sweatpants on. Okay. That was their idea. They came out with a sweatsuit and, and they had this hat <laughs> that went with it. And it was supposed to be like Sylvester Stallone, the You're Rocky, like, no. the training where, where he's running in the meat locker and he's punching the raw meat. You know, he's in the sweatsuit and the hat and they want me to wear it. I'm like, no, I'm not wearing a hat. No, I'll wear the shirt. I'll wear the stupid pants. I'm not wearing the hat. I don't wear hats. I am not wearing the hat. That's not me. That's not real. I've wore sweatpants. I've wore sweatshirts. I wear them sometimes, not very often. I don't wear hats ever. I don't, I don't, I'm not wearing it. I'm just not, you know, they were a little pissed over it. I think (laughs) they didn't say it, but Andy, um, they're both good guys. I've got nothing bad to say about the guys that made the doc, but I think Andy in his position and the stuff that he's done and the work that he's done in Hollywood, I don't think he's used to somebody telling him no. And he didn't take it the best way a couple different times in the movie. Um, he, you know, it, quite honestly, he just, he didn't get his way. And I understand it was their money. It was their project. It was their documentary. But, I, but it's, but Which I'm the I'd one that has to live with the results, you know, for, for the rest of my life. And I told him that. I said, mm-hmm. from now until the day I die, I'm the face on the screen. I'm the one that deals with all that in whatever way. And they're like, you really think it's going to be that big a deal about the hat? And I said, no, I don't. But that's not me i'm not wearing it i'm, I'm not an actor you. i'm i'm me being me and that me wouldn't wear that hat and i'm not going to wear that hat it's that simple and uh the footage where they wanted me to run up the steps to the old high school in Atumwa, they said okay now take your bike and run up the stairs i looked at him i said really look at me do i look like i run i said i'll walk up the stairs and if you want it to look like i'm running you can speed the video up i said i'm not running up the stairs you know i I tried to do what they wanted because i knew they were i don't know if i'd say perfectionist but they were really picky they had they absolutely had a vision on what they wanted this project to be and i think it was really good like you mentioned the animation and stuff but that made it tougher too because they really tried to live up to it and when they did the kickstarter i believe they put a date as february of 2014 and they missed it by over two years the film didn't come out until june of 16 well i mean but that's kind of the the nature of production especially considering you know you guys they they thought they had finished production and you know then things change yeah and uh and they you know the animation costs money and acquiring the rights to, oh, the, yeah. to the music and the different stuff like that costs money and it took time post-production, post-production like just yeah. the but 
I was the face of it, you know, because I was the yeah. one on Facebook, you know, kind of pimping out the Kickstarter. Hey, man, we're trying to get this film done. Any of my friends, if you can't put money in it, share it. You know, every everything helps. Let's try to reach these goals so we can get this thing done. And I was the face of that Kickstarter. And a lot of people think that was my Kickstarter. And it wasn't. Yeah. And uh, when the goal was February of 14, from February 14 till June of 16, I got a lot of shit from people. When's this going to be done? I put this in. I, I pledged this. And I'm like, talking to the wrong person. I didn't get the money. I'm not in control of the money. That wasn't my Kickstarter. I can't control when this is done. And I finally got to the point where I just started telling people, look, there's two things they can do. They can either get it done or they can get it done right. And I said, they're getting it done right. Whenever that is, that's when it's going to be. That's all I can tell you because I honestly don't know any more about when it's going to be done than you do. And I, I, a lot of people, I think, just kind of didn't want to take that at face value. Oh, I put money in my Kickstarter and where's my toy, you know? And mm-hmm. Kickstarter has been a problem like that over years. I mean, I think the way it works, it works well. But I think people are thinking they're buying a product and they're not. Most cases. They're making an investment. Yeah. They're buying the idea of a product. You know? And investments are often long term. Yeah, I backed another video game related doc, which I'm not going to mention because it's I, I'd have to look, but I'm pretty sure it's past its date. Mm. I've sent them exactly zero emails or anything. I'm not going to bother them. I, I trust the people doing it or I wouldn't have put the money in it. I have faith in the project. It's going to be done when it gets done. I've been down this road once. So I got an idea a little bit about what it's like and I'm not going to bother them because any time spent answering questions about why isn't it done is time taken away from the project on why it's not done. So if if you're not willing to spend the money, you probably shouldn't be on Kickstarter, you know, and it's sad, but it's true. There's just, there, everybody wants it and they want it now. I was glad they waited. It, it sucked dealing with some of the, the backlash over it, but in the end it was worth it because they, I think they really did get it right. Yeah. Um, I was just, that backlash is temporary, you know? Yeah. It, it sucked at the time, but you know, it's done. It's over. It's, it's ancient history. And the end result's going to be the end result. You know, I never expected it to be on Netflix. Um, one of the things I yeah. thought they wasted time and money on was subtitles when they were doing the post-production stuff, they were doing it in all these different languages, putting subtitles on it. And I'm thinking, well, that's stupid. Nobody's going to watch it. Holy crap. Was I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so many people, if it wasn't for Facebook, I couldn't even talk to them. And I say that not as in I'm not inaccessible, but I wouldn't be able to understand if they sent me an email, I wouldn't know what they're saying. I'd have to run it through something because different languages mm-hmm. on Facebook, I've used the crap out of the translate fi- uh, feature and I've talked to people all over the world and I've met people that I was like, wow. So that's why they did the subtitles. <laughs> you know, I just, I didn't think big picture. I just didn't see it getting the, getting where it's been. I had a guy from Columbia, the country, Columbia, and he said, this is the first film I've been able to show at university for my students that's related to video games. I'm like, really? You know, what about Chasing Ghosts and King of Kong? And, you know, and all the ones I named off, he goes, I I couldn't show them. They don't have Spanish subtitles. I think it was. Oh, wow. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm not wrong because I feel like an idiot if I am. But it was subtitled in the language that the students could read and understand. And because Mm -hmm. of that, he actually showed it at university. And I'm like, I never thought of that. You know, it's just to me, I'm thinking subtitles are an annoyance and it's, it's a waste of money. I just figured video gaming about an American player playing the, an American video game was going to have an American audience. Mm-hmm. And wow. Was I wrong? Um, the fact that Enrico's in it, I've had a lot of people from Italy. They had an event over there not too long after it. And I actually, the guy sent me the money in PayPal. I paid Tim and Andy and I had 20 DVDs sent to my house 
And then <laughs> Tina and I signed all of them. And then we paid to have them shipped to Italy for an event. And I don't know if they were selling them or giving them away at the event, but Enrico was at the event in Italy. And they wanted us to come. And I said, yeah, unless you guys can afford to have us there, we can't afford, you know, international airfare and, and everything that it's entails. Awesome. That's a pretty big, you know, endeavor for, for some, some kid from Iowa in particular, you know. Um, so I said, sadly, we can't come. But we did do a Skype um, live during the event. And, and they had the discs there and they were signed and we sent a bunch of the player cards Walter made and stuff. And they just were ecstatic, you know, it was wow. pretty cool. And like I said, all the way back to the Facebook translate, if it wasn't for that, I probably couldn't have talked to most of these people. So it's, it's been amazing. It's been so much fun. I, I've met people that I never would have met. Um, there's people in different places of the world that know who I am and know I'm not the bomber, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, just there's the, the one that really caught me off guard the most is documentary lovers that aren't necessarily video game people mm. that they've, they've watched another doc on Netflix or something. And then ours has been suggested as another suggestion for whatever reason. And the people that have watched it, that just really couldn't care less about video games, but they were so happy to watch the story. The fact that I didn't give up that, you know, the perseverance and the lesson that you taught, you know, you never give up, chase your dreams, you know, whatever Aww. their take was on it. So many people said it's just inspiration for them to do different things, even not video game related, but just to show that if you have a goal, you have to keep trying. If you fail your first time, then you're not probably going to achieve a whole lot of anything. So that's been amazing. I didn't see that coming at all. I, I was actually, as it grew closer to release, I was dreading it, to be honest. Cause I kept thinking, Oh, here we go. You know, the fat kid living in his mom's basement, hasn't seen daylight for six months, you know, the stereotype stuff off the internet you read. And I'm sure in some corners of the internet somewhere that I didn't stumble across that, that conversation probably took place. I'm sure people talk shit about me, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's been fun and it's been a life experience that I never thought I'd have. I'd never flown ever. And I've flown several times now because of the dog. I flew to Washington, D.C. I've flown to Austin, Texas. And earlier this year, we got flown out to Score Wars in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So wow. none of that would have ever happened, you know. And uh, the people that were at Meow Wolf, which is where the event was in New Mexico, I didn't even know what a Meow Wolf was. <laughs> and I apologize. <laughs> you know, I get an email and it's from, I, I'd have to look back to tell you who even sent it to me, but it was from an employee at Meow Wolf. And I'm reading that going, is this for real yeah what's a meow wolf and why do they want us there and then i started I, you know i googled it and found the website and started looking and talking, well that's pretty cool the art and the stuff they do but it just never clicked why video games but the owner i guess was really into galaga and they had the galaga world championships and then they had some other players that came out to marathon and um somebody decided they wanted us there and they were willing to get us out there and it's like okay sure i'll go see what a meow wolf was it was awesome the place was so cool. I've never been in a business where the entire staff was just more friendly and happy to see you and talk to you. And I, I think every person on the entire staff probably got pictures with me and Tina at some point during the weekend. And it was just, it was so cool. It's like, we seen your movie. We love your movie. We were so happy you came here. And it's like, Oh, okay, Aww. cool. I never expected that, you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's been so fun. Um, people that you're closer to on a day-to-day -day basis, like some of the people you work with, one of the common questions, usually it's the first one, well, how much did you get paid? Not a dime. And I tell them, <laughs> they're like, no way, you didn't do all that all this time and not get paid for it. And I said, well, we got paid, but we didn't get cash. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, 
well, I have a nibbler machine in my living room now. You know, I sold mine when I was a teenager. I hadn't seen one for two decades. I have one in my living room now. Um, I'd never flown on an airplane before. You know, we got flown to several different places. We stayed in nice hotels. We got to go out and eat. We met people. You know, we got paid in other ways. We got paid in ways that I'm not sure we would have gotten paid even if we had the money because we probably wouldn't have done some of the things that we did. So in that respect, it was probably better than money. You know, the experiences make us far richer than the money would have. And I'll remember them longer. You know, money you get, you spend, it's gone. You paid the bills, you paid the mortgage, car payment, food, whatever, and it's gone and you forget about it. But the people, the places, the things, you never forget those. You know, they're with you forever. And the other thing I explain to people is, okay, how many people have done something in their life where somebody else felt compelled to make a movie about it and tell your story? I said, to me, that was cool. I I never asked them how much money I was going to get paid. You know, it's a documentary. These guys did it out of their pocket. They did it on the side as a project because it was something they believed in. It was a story they wanted to tell. And I think they did a great job. And I, I think they lost money on it, quite honestly. I mean, yeah, they got all this money in Kickstarter, but that went into studio time and editing and the equipment that was used and the musical rights. And I know it's hard for people to believe that they haven't somehow made money on this, but this isn't Star Wars. This isn't a Marvel film. You know, this is something that somebody believed in and they took time away from their family. They took time away from their job. They took time away from their friends. They went to places they never would have went. And, you know, small little town, Iowa, that they probably never cared about or ever cared to see again, maybe. But they did it and they made it. And it's it's just so cool. You know, so there's some things that money just can't buy. There's some things that are bigger than money. And then for me, this was one of them. So we've been friends on Facebook for a while now, um, just because of, you know, I- since I've started production on the show, uh, I've kind of gotten, I've, I've, I have a network now of people who are involved in, in gaming in some capacity, and we've been friends. Right. And I've noticed that you and your wife are very close. Um, you, 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 you talk about her on social media quite a bit. And I feel like knowing that and then watching the documentary, they did a really good job of um, really showcasing how supportive your wife is. I, I, I feel like, especially in the, the second half when you're, you have a couple different billion point attempts um, that don't go your way. She's, you know, she suffered every bit of the pain that I suffered. You know, she, she felt just as bad as I did. Yeah. She's my best friend. I'm blessed. Um, as the, the film showed, I changed jobs. I've been with the new job for eight years. I've been with Tina for 18 years and she's seen the good. She's seen the bad and she's seen some of the ugly and she's always been there for me. And I've told anybody that cares to listen that without her, that film doesn't exist. Period. <laughs> You know, maybe that maybe the 10, 15 minute short straight to YouTube, maybe that exists. But without her support, without her blessing, the, the stuff that happened in the film from that point forward wouldn't have happened. You know, if she like some people, they just video games. They're stupid. You know, I don't want that shit in my house. You're going to waste your time playing that. You know, different people have attitudes about stuff. Um, a, a fellow supervisor at work. She saw pictures on Facebook of our living room with these arcade machines in the living room and some of the Tim McVeigh stuff on the walls. And uh, that's all my wife. Um, She goes, she must really love your wife must really love you. And I said, why is that? What made you say that? She goes, well, to let you put that video game in her living room. And I said, you got two things right. I said, my wife really does love me. I said, but make no mistake about it. That is her living room. Every, every single item in every single place in that living room was because she chose that item to be in that place. And uh, Billy Mitchell's made jokes of it. Not, not so much jokes, kind of a, 
kind of a tip of the hat, but kind of a joke too. I mean, not making fun of me, but he's like, you you walk into Tim's house and it's a wall of Tim. It's like a shrine to Tim. And uh, that's my wife. You know, she did all that because that's what she wanted to see. And that's what she wants on the walls every day. You know, when, when her and I got together, I had the key to the city of Atumwa and it was in a box and it was in a closet or a storage unit. I don't remember which. We lived together in a house for a while that we rented and we were there for almost six years. And then we bought the house that we're in now. And when we got all the stuff out of the old house and got stuff out of storage units and, you know, finally, you know, opened everything and started putting stuff away, she stumbles across the key. This was 2006. We've been together since 2000. She didn't even know about it. She didn't know about Tim <laughs> McVeigh Day. She didn't know about the first billion point game. She didn't know about the key to the city. I'd never told her. It wasn't relevant. And I told that story to Tim and Andy. And they're like, no way. You guys were together for six years. You were actually married. And she had no idea. And I'm like, no. It was something I did 25 years ago. You know, I didn't tell her about the boo-boo I had when I wrecked my bike and skinned my knee 25 years ago. And they're like, well, getting the key to the city is something a little different. I'm like, yeah, but I was over it, you know, 24 years ago or, or whatever, you know. And uh, she just freaked out. You got the key to the city. I'm like, yeah. For what? I said, playing video games. For playing video games. I'm like, yeah. People don't get the key to the city for playing video games. I said, I don't know what to tell you. I did. You know, so that I had to explain the whole story to her. And we told Tim and Andy that. And they just, they couldn't believe it. I said, what do you think I do? That I walk up to people. Hi, I'm Tim McVeigh. I'm the first person to get a billion points on a video game. Here's my key. That'd be stupid. <laughs> you know? Um, I, that was the that was the way you got in with the ladies. You're like, hey, yeah, ladies, that didn't would... happen. <laughs> there might have been one or two women in the entire world that might have been impressed with that, and I never found them. So yeah, that <laughs> that never got me in with the ladies or guys or anywhere. I've never found the lock, and I've only got half the key. I've only got the half of it mounted, so <laughs> I don't know where the other half is, and I don't know what it unlocks. I've never found that answer. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I, that was something that I, I really felt like I wanted to say something because, you know, I, I think that the, especially the second half, I wasn't sure where the documentary was going to go, but the second half where you make multiple attempts, you know, it really, what really stuck out to me is like, she seemed to, even though she had never been a part of the marathon with you, that, especially that, that first time, she seemed like she knew how, how she should try and at least to help you yeah. and take care of you. She was very aware of everything going on. It just, it, it really, I could just tell, you know, that she was there for you. And then as, as it grew, as, as there were some failures and then there was multiple attempts, she's like, okay, well, this didn't really work good. Maybe if we try this, she started trying to come up with ideas on her own, you know, outside of what I've told her and what I've always tried to do. She tried to think what would be helpful. What would maybe put him over the hump? You know, what, what mm -hmm. seemed to irritate him after he's been up for 34 hours or what seemed to incur. So like when I finally got it, when I did it again, if you remember the story, they talk about the macaroni and cheese and she made the mac and cheese for me. It made me think of the, the beginning when you said your mom made it, that for you too. It's that was a hundred percent real. I mean, it's exactly how Aww. it happened. I was, I was dying. I didn't know why I didn't feel tired. I didn't feel hungry, but I was losing guys and I was getting very frustrated and I still had at least four hours to go. And she kept asking me, are you hungry? I'm like, no, I'm not hungry. Well, I'm going to cook you some macaroni and cheese. I said, fine, go cook me macaroni and cheese. You know, just, I'm not hungry. And she brought it to me and I ate it. And then after I ate it, it's just like, oh, like, like a breath of fresh air. It's like, okay, I guess I was hungry and I didn't realize it because I was so tired. And then once I actually ate and got the energy, it's just like everything feels good and I'm not dying again. And I mean, the doc nailed it. That was really mm -hmm. what happened. And if she, she hadn't 
noticed that and realized she stayed yeah. up the whole game, never slept at all, no five hour energies, no caffeinated drinks, no nothing, no no stimulants of any kind, just sheer willpower. She decided she didn't want to have anybody else in the house. She didn't want to have extra distractions. And I said, who's going to stay up with me? She goes, I will. And I just laughed. I'm like, you can't stay up that long. <laughs> But the fact that she, number one, could and did and was still herself lucid enough to realize, okay, he's dying. He's starting to get a little cranky. I think he's hungry. She realized that when I couldn't. And because of her action, we we got it. And I say we because if she hadn't done that, that game would have been another failed attempt. I have no doubt in my mind. The part that warmed my heart, besides the macaroni and cheese, because I immediately was like, oh, I was immediately like, oh, my gosh. That was like made me think of the very first scene with your mom. Um but then when there's like a, it's a shot of the game and you're struggling, I think a little bit, you can tell that just through her experiences with you, she knows exactly what to look for. She knows uh-huh. how to read the game at least well enough, you know, to sit there and, and help you out. And I, to me, that was really telling. Oh, absolutely. We're best friends. <laughs> I mean, I've got friends that just don't understand it because like when right now I'm riding with another guy, so we don't get to do what we used to do because I don't want to be rude to him. You know, when we're riding together in a vehicle, yeah. I don't sit on the phone and talk all the way. I talk to him, you know, because we're riding together. But when I was driving by myself and I would talk to her on, I had a Bluetooth headset. I put the Bluetooth headset on. I got about a 35 minute drive. I would talk to her all the way to work. Our lunch hours are at the same time. So headset on, talk to her all through lunch. 35 minute drive home, headset on, talk to her all the way home. And the, the guy that's actually riding with me that we're riding together now, he's working with me now. <laughs> At the time, he's like, you guys are crazy for each other. You're retarded for each other, is how he put it. And I said, why? Why do you say that? He goes, how in the hell do you talk to her on the way to work, during lunch, on the way home? What do you do when you get home? I'm like, what do you mean? How do you have anything left to talk about? You've talked to her all the way to work, all through lunch, all after, all the way. You you can't have anything to talk about when you get home. I said, well, we do. How do you two talk that much? I said, how are you talking to me right now? You and I are good friends. We can talk about nothing for hours. Talking about working on computers or video games or whatever. You know, we talk all the way home when we're riding together. I said, it's the same thing. She's my best friend. And if we're not at work, that's the only time we're really apart. You know, obviously we sleep together. We're at home in the evening together. We have very similar hours. If we're not at work, we're together always. You know, if she goes to the store, I'll quit playing a game to go to the store with her just because I want to be with her. Maybe she needs help carrying something. Maybe she just wants somebody to talk to. Maybe we don't even talk at all, but we're still together. And we do everything together. I mean, we go to events. If I've had people invite me to events that's been willing to get me a plane ticket to fly to some event. And I mentioned, well, you got to get two. And they're like, why do I got to get two? I said, you got to get Tina a ticket. Well, you know, you're going to be at the event. We're going to have you as part of a panel. So we're willing to pay for that. Your wife's just coming along with you. And I said, we're a set. You don't get one without the other. I said, if you're not willing to get Tina there, then I'm not coming. And I've, I've lost opportunities to go to some events because of that. And most people would say what I just said. I lost opportunities. I look at it as, well, that was their loss, not mine. I'd rather spend my time with my wife than be in an event without her. Because I, I went to one event one year. I went to the Midwest Gaming Classic. Mark Hoff and I drove out. We went to the Midwest Gaming Classic, spent the night, was there for two days, came back. And I was miserable. I was miserable the entire time because she wasn't there. And then I had to sit and explain to her everything she missed. And I just felt terrible that I left her home and I went and I did all this. And she was sitting home by herself. <laughs> and 
I didn't like that feeling. And I said, I'll never do it again. I'm never going anywhere without my partner, you know, and I'm pretty sure if you talk to her, she feels the same way. You know, I can't speak for her, but we just like being together. You don't have to talk all the time. You know, um, it's just, you're there and you want to be there and you want, and you want to see each other and you want to talk to each other when you can, you know, when you want to, if you just want to sit beside each other, it's like being in a movie. Sometimes there's quiet time, but you're still sitting beside each other. Maybe you're holding hands, maybe you're not, but you're still experiencing the same thing Mm -hmm. together. You don't have to talk every minute you're together to be together, you know? And, uh, it just feels weird going anywhere without her, especially after 18 years, you know? Um, you read about couples sometimes where one person dies and the other one dies within hours or days. And I, I told her, I said, <laughs> I'm not trying to scare you or anything. I said, but I'm pretty sure that's how we're going to go out. <laughs> she goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't know how you feel. I said, but I just, I can't even imagine not being with you. I said, uh, I said, if you die first, I probably won't be here very long. And she goes, well, I don't want to hear that. And I'm like, I'm telling you the truth. You know, I just, I, I've read that so many times and I just, I absolutely believe that's going to be us. Well, I think they did a fantastic job of capturing, you know, that, that genuine aspect of y'all's relationship. Um, and there was so many things that I think they felt like they did really good. Um, uh, I had a, kind of a random question. I just thought about it. So I noticed that you streamed quite a few of your attempts, mm-hmm. um, your later attempts. Um, and so what was the, is there, and I noticed the most recent one you, you streamed on Twitch, right? Yeah. What did you stream on previously? I'm just curious. Okay. So when Tim and Andy started trying to hook me and Dwayne up someplace we could play where there was two nibblers, where we could play in a live venue. Cause my preference, especially at that time, this was 2008, 2009 would be to play somewhere live. Um, that's how we did it as a kid. You know, there's people around, it's just easier to stay awake. So they started looking for venues or events where we could do this. I don't know how they came across MAGFest, but this event was open for four days straight. From the time it begins till the time it ends, it's open. You know, so you could play that whole time. It wasn't even a question, could you? It was like, yeah, that's what everybody's there for. That's the whole point of it. So they figured out that they could get the games and stuff there. And one of my stipulations, since it was out in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, out in Washington, D.C. area, my stipulation was, okay, number one, you got to get Tina there. That was never a problem. And number two is somehow my friends have to be able to watch. I said, we're in an internet world. I've seen YouTube videos. I said, I don't know how that stuff works. That's beyond my scope. I said, but figure it out, make it happen. I'm not going halfway across the country to play a game that my friends can't watch me play. I said, so you got to figure out how to make that happen. Those are my two stipulations, my, my two strings attached to doing this. So they set the first stream up between Dwayne and I. And at the time it was on, I guess what was the popular thing at that point was called Ustream, mm. which, which still exists. It's still around, but I'm not sure what really made him pick Ustream. I can tell you that Twitch didn't exist at the time. It was just mm-hmm. in TV at the time. And I'm not even 100% sure that existed yet. I hadn't heard of it anyway. Um, Ustream with them using was the first time I heard of that. So the first event at MAGFest, they did Ustream. So MAGFest was a failure. We didn't get it. So the next time I played and, and set up my own stuff at home, I figured out how to set it up. Um, There's a couple of really short tutorials that you could find if you look for them and bought a webcam and all that and thought, well, it may not be the production quality DC had, but it's, it's the best I can do, you know? And uh, that was in Easter of 2009. And I used Ustream. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 
I don't remember how long till my next stream, but by the time I did my next stream, uh, the gaming place seemed to be that started. As far as I know, Dwayne and I are the first ones to ever do that. I'm not saying we're the first people to ever stream a video game, but I'm quite certain that we were the first people to ever stream classic arcade game play. Yeah. And to do it head to head with two people on the same machine, both trying to beat each other and trying to set a world record at the same time. So I think we were the first to start that little bit of a trend. Whether we were or not, doesn't matter. It's just kind of a footnote thing. But yeah. uh, so streaming started to become a thing, you know, it started to pick up from then until now. And it's it's pretty huge now for some people in particular. You know, there's millionaires off of it. And uh, Justin TV came into existence. And I, I did a few streams on Justin TV. And then at some point along the line, they transitioned from Justin TV to Twitch. And then I transitioned mm-hmm. to Twitch along with it. And I don't stream very often because... People at work, they're like, oh, you're a video game master or guru or whatever. I'm like, no, I'm good at one <laughs> video game. It's called Nibbler. Just because I'm good at Nibbler doesn't make me good at Call of Duty or, you know, whatever the Fortnite or whatever the hot game is. I'm good mm-hmm. at one game. <laughs> I have fun. <laughs> I play the other games, but I pretty much suck at them. They're just, now maybe I'm too old. Maybe it's just, it's not my genre. I don't know. Why am I good at Nibbler? I don't know. You know, I didn't say that. <laughs> that's the game I want to be good at. You know, I, I probably would have picked a more popular game. I probably would have picked Robotron because I was pretty good at that at one point, but not, not to the level that I am on Nibbler, but I love yeah. Robotron. It's one of my favorite games, but you don't get to choose what you're good at. You're just, you're good at it or you're not. Sometimes working mm-hmm. at it can make you better, but I, I didn't choose Nibbler because I thought it was the best game ever. I liked it. I still liked it. Or I couldn't play it. But you're good at what you're good at. You know, if it, if I didn't like the game, it'd be like work. And I, I couldn't play that for two days and make myself do it. So I mm-hmm. see I see how Dwayne kind of struggles with it a little bit because he kind of pretty much hates the game. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so I, I don't know how you can even try to marathon a game you hate, but he's done it a few times. I think it's like angry. I almost want to say angry sex. I don't know what else to call it. Well, like- I felt like watching the documentary, Dwayne Richard was like, there's something simmer in there. Like he's, he's intense. It was the vibe I got. Um, and so I, I got the comparison you were trying to make though. <laughs> people still ask me, do you think Dwayne cheated? And I said, I never did. Well, there's people that's approached it like, well, he worked on games and he serviced games and he might've known. And I'm like, you know, beyond all that, beyond the fact that he worked on the games and he might've known and he, he could have potentially blah, blah, blah. What I've got out of my time with Dwayne is he doesn't take the games too seriously but he's proud. Of, he's like me. He's proud of what he's yeah. accomplished on it. He's not running around going, oh, I'm the best video gamer ever. You know, they they got him. They kind of egged him on to say some of the stuff he said. I mean, just to kind of bring it out of him. You know, it's not how he is in real life. He seems like a very extroverted character yeah. anyways. Like, but he just he doesn't really just beat his chest about video games. No. Know? And he did the right thing when, when he was presented with the evidence. Well, see, there, there's people that argue that. They're like, well, yeah, because he got caught. And I'm like, God, you guys are, he he takes too much pride in his play. I just don't see him taking a shortcut. Honestly, I feel like what people are reacting to is um, his personality more than anything. I think so. I was like, he's an intense guy, very clearly. People hate each other because of like the the trailers. They think I come to kill him and I would, you know, stuff like that. And uh, we're actually good friends. It was actually very obvious that at MAGFest, you... I felt like him not playing anymore really took a toll on you. Oh, Similar to how those that first billion point game, you had two other people playing yep. with you. And that was really helpful. I can see that that being a key aspect of, of 
the total marathon experience really. That, that's what makes it so different. The first time I had the two people, the last time I had nobody but my wife. And then like you noted at MAGFest, you know, once Dwayne was done, I didn't want to quit. But at that point, I'm like, I won. It's over. Mm. You know, it's just that little voice in your head that I kept referencing was like, well, I won. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew the goal was to get the record, but it's like, okay, now I got hard because before it was, I want the record, but I also want to beat Dwayne, you know, and I lost my rabbit. I, he was my rabbit. I was looking up at the screen. He started before I did. He was 13 million ahead of me when we started. And I was trying to cut into that lead and catch him the whole game. And he was my rabbit that I was mm -hmm. chasing. And then all of a sudden my rabbit went to sleep and it's like, shit, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. You know, and it just, it did. My game went to hell after that in a hurry. The fact that that was the longest marathon I'd done in a quarter of a century probably didn't help uh, either. I, I should have practiced more than I did. A lot of the stuff's hindsight. If people ask you, how do you train for a marathon? And I said, oh, there's just so many things you can or can't <laughs> do. I mean, it's not like you can go lift weights that it's going to make you better or, you know, any such thing. For me, my biggest thing is, is uh, I used to drink a lot of soda. I've been trying to cut that out, you know, trying to help with my weight a mm -hmm. little bit. I know a big part of my weight is soda because I could drink two, two liters of Mountain Dew every single day. That's a lot of sugar. It's not good on my kidneys or anything else. So just from that aspect, I'm trying to cut back on soda, which I've done really good the last few yeah. years. But as it, as it relates to marathons, I would try to just totally cut out all caffeine like three or four weeks out. Everything. No soda, no coffee, no anything that had any caffeine in it whatsoever. And then that way, if I did get tired during the game, well, two things. I, I was getting better sleep. Cause I wasn't, you know, decaffeinated or caffeinated where I was laying there staring at the ceiling and trying to fall asleep. And then if I did feel like I needed a little bit of a bump during the game, just hell, just drinking a can of soda is like, Whoa, I ain't had caffeine for a You're month. like wow. cracked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't do you any good when you drink it every day. Cause you're so yeah. used to it. But when you totally cut it out of your diet, I mean, when I got it, when I was a kid, I didn't drink much soda back then. That was a different era. People didn't drink soda like they do mm -hmm. today. Back then the soda was more of a treat. You got one, couple times a month if that so like when i got that first billion the only thing i had for stimulant the entire game i think was two or three cans of coca-cola wow. that was it you know at the time i think viverin was out the caffeine pills and somebody told me to try those one time i never did take them during a marathon i'd taken them one other time we were going on a long trip or something i was trying to stay awake while we were driving they made my stomach hurt i mean they just upset my mm -hmm. stomach and just like ah i ain't taking that ever again <laughs> So that was one of the things, you know, I would try to cut caffeine out. And then like within days of the marathon, you're thinking, okay, you don't want to eat anything like chili or mm -hmm. burritos. Or, anything that's going to upset your stomach. And... Or make you have to go to the restroom more than necessary, yeah. you know. And you, you think about your dietary thing a little bit more. And you try to get a good night's sleep and stuff like that. And just be as fresh as you can. And myself, I try to start as fast as I can from waking up. Even if I mean I'm not even really awake. The earlier I start from the time I wake up to the time I start playing, any time in that period to me, I consider a wasted time. If I wake up and I don't start playing for an hour, in my mind, that's an hour off the end of my game because I wasted it on the front mm. of the game. So you, you want all of that fresh time. You want to be playing as much as you can, like literally get out of bed, brush your teeth, maybe grab a quick drink or a bite, grab your clothes, start you know, get going as quick as you can. You don't want to waste any time off the front of that game because the end of the game, you're going to be way more tired yeah. and it's going to be harder to maintain. So stuff like that. I mean, that's really all you can do for a marathon, you know, and then think about what helps you through the game. Um, maybe have a rug or a mat, something that's a little softer than a hard floor to stand on, have a, a stool or two. I like having one that's hardwood and I like having one that's padded 
So I can stand at different points. I can sit on the hard stool for a while. I can sit on the soft stool for mm-hmm. a while just to change it up, have a little bit different. Um, always make sure I have a lot of ice. I'll, I'll get a cup of ice and I'll just suck on the ice cubes. Mm-hmm. Instead of drinking a lot of water, I'll just have ice in my mouth a lot. Um, for quick snacks during the game, I like the little baby carrots, baby carrot sticks, little pieces of celery, stuff like mm-hmm. that. You think of what what's going to be easy to eat, what's going to keep you full, so you're not really hungry. You've got to eat and drink. You can't play for two games for two days without eating and drinking. You know, there's stories of people dropping dead in cyber cafes mm-hmm. in Asia and stuff because they sat at the chair for 28 hours and never drank or ate anything and just played. And they, and they had like heart attacks because all they've drank are those yeah. energy drinks in the last. Just yeah, you know, I drank 15 monsters. <laughs> wow, really? Right. I did one marathon like that, and that got me off monsters in a hurry. <laughs> I, uh, I, the the, the Magfest. I, I drank 13 monsters in 17 oh. hours, and I quit drinking them after that. I bet because my it felt like my heart was going to come out of my chest, and it was just up and down, up and down. It's like riding an elevator. You got the real big sugar rush, and then you got the really big sugar crash, and those things are horrible for right. you. The, the closest I personally have come is I did, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Extra Life gaming campaign. Every year, um, yeah, yeah. They, they you marathon to raise money, and I did that last year. It was like I, I streamed on Twitch for 25 hours because – um, and it was it was fun. I was really tired. Like the and it, you see, y'all were talking about the last five hours. The last five hours mm-hmm. of my extra live stream were me playing Hearthstone, <laughs> very very passively. Um, great game. It is it is a great game, and it was it was I love it. And it was honestly what I needed to like keep me going. But that last five hours was absolutely miserable. And they had extra life last year, but it happened on the the same night as the time change. So it wasn't 24. Like you could do, you could do, you, <laughs> you if, you did, if you did 24 hours, you went from eight to seven. And I was like, that's shitty. So I did yeah. eight to eight just so it sounded better. Right. <laughs> but I like to say it was 25 hours because that, that fallback, that fallback, watching it go, whatever is like two, you know, two to three AM and then it goes back to two. I was like yep. the most disheartening fucking time oh, change yeah. I've ever had in my life. <laughs> ever. Well it's like over the years people said, Well you played Nibbler for two days. I'm like, no. I started at two o'clock in, in the afternoon on Sunday and I ended at quarter to eleven in the morning on Tuesday. And they're like, that's two days. I'm like, no, two days is forty eight hours. I didn't make it two days. <laughs> forty four hours or forty five minutes. I did not make it two days. Bro, that extra four hours. That so, extra it... <laughs> Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> My my goal, and I, I'm still not sure if I'm crazy enough to try this yet. I'd always said when I was younger, especially after this doc and everything that's went along with it, I wanted to see if I could last 50 hours once I hit 50 years old or older. And I hit 50 last August, and I haven't been. I kind of guess I did try out New Mexico. Um, the uh, From what everybody told me, the altitude sickness is what got me. Mm. I couldn't stay out of the restroom. Um, oh, no. Both ends. It just, oh, I've never been so miserable oh, in my no. life. I was dizzy. I probably ran to the bathroom in a 12-hour period. I probably went to the bathroom 20 times. Wow. And I, I was literally sitting there, like, holding my legs together, going, okay, I got to get some more lives built up so I can go to the bathroom. It's like, screw it, I got to go. And the bathroom was a long ways away, and you had to go through two sets of doors, and the doors would lock behind you, and you had to have somebody there to let you back in. You're a world-class sprinter at this point. Oh, <laughs> it was horrible. I've never been so miserable oh. and more disappointed in a marathon in my life. I lasted 28 hours, came up way short. Tomasaki did get his billion, and he just quit. 
He didn't care about the record. He wasn't trying to do anything other than complete his original quest, which was to see the score roll. Wow. He wanted to get the billion. The only reason I went was to support him. When they first invited me, I didn't know what a Meow Wolf was. And I was like, eh, <laughs> I, I don't really want to go play Nibbler. And Dwayne was trying to talk me into it because he was one of the ones that helped get all the machines there. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that was telling them, you know, you need to get this person there, or get that person there. And then they started adding people that I wanted to meet. You know, Donald Hayes was going to be there and, and stuff like that. And then finally, Dwayne dropped a bombshell that we're going to have two Nibblers and you're going to get to play beside Tom. And I was like, oh, you rat bastard. You finally got me. <laughs> And uh, my only goal was to see Tom get the billion. And I knew, like you said, from past experience, somebody playing beside you helps you keep going. Mm-hmm. Tom never had that. Not not once. None of his marathons. He never had somebody marathoning next to him. And I was just positive that if I played next to him, he'd be able to do it. Yeah. And so I didn't want to quit. As miserable as I was, I didn't want to quit. Tom was telling me, he goes, if you're that bad, he's like, just shut it down and quit. He says, there's no shame. He says, I won't be upset with you. You don't feel well. And this was only like 12 hours in. I'm like, no, maybe it's going to get better. You know, they went and got me Dramamine and uh, Pepto-Bismo and a couple different things. And I'm like, maybe I can play through it. And Tom's going, if you're feeling bad, go back to the hotel. I said, Tom, I can go back to the hotel and I can feel bad there. Or I can stay here and keep playing beside you and feel bad here. Either way, I'm going to feel bad. So I might as well keep playing the damn game. You're better than me. <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, do what you think you want to do. He says, but don't feel like you're obligated to stay here. And I said, I'm going to be miserable no matter where I'm at. If I'm sitting in the hotel room and I'm miserable, all I'm going to be doing is watching your stream wishing I was still playing. I said, so I might as well stay here and be miserable and hopefully I can play through it and it gets better. And it didn't. I, I put a, a goal in my head. If I got below 70 lives, that was too few it just wasn't worth it. And I got under that. And I'm like, okay, that's it. Time to pull the plug. And I quit and I'll be damned if not within an hour, all that shit went away. <laughs> I wasn't dizzy anymore. My stomach was, I was like, are you kidding me? If I would have just kept playing one more damn hour, you know? And uh, we never left. We stayed at the venue and I didn't stay right on top of Tom, but go over every once in a while, talk to him, see how he was doing. You know, do you need anything to drink? Have you ate anything? When's the last time you've been to the bathroom? You know, try to keep him cognizant of all the different things that he should probably be thinking about doing if he hasn't, you know, and just try to encourage him. Come on, man, you got this. You this, this many hours to go. You've got this. Come on, keep going. And then I'd get away from him for a while, leave him alone, you know, not not try to hover on him and check on him, you know, every hour or so and see how he's going. And we were there when he got it. Wow. So that, that made my trip. I told him when I got there, they did an interview with me. Meow Wolf did. They did interviews with all those players. And Tina and I got there a day earlier than most because of the way everything worked out with the travel and they took us down to their studio and they did an interview with us. And one of the questions they asked me is what, what do you personally want to get out of this event? What do you want to have happen or witness or, you know, what's your personal goals for this event? And I said, my personal goal is to see Tom complete his quest. I said, I want to see Tom get his billion. He started all this. Nobody would know who I am. Nobody would know who Rick Carter was as it relates to Nibbler. Nobody would really know who Nibbler or what Nibbler was if Tom hadn't came up with the idea. And I wanted to be there. He's a great guy, really nice guy. Him and his girlfriend, Heather. And it just, it made my, it made the whole trip worth it when they did it. I was so happy. I was probably happier than he was. <laughs> it was just, it's like, yeah, you finally did it. He's a little guy. I gave him a big Aww. old bear hug. <laughs> I, 
that's amazing. I, I felt like at the very beginning when they show you and Tom, like they, they, they do the animation of you two when yeah. y'all are kids. And then Tom is really present at the beginning part of the doc when it's all about that first billion, you know, and I, I think the fact that you were there for him and supported him, that makes my heart so warm. I feel like there's a, there's a lot of craziness in the classic arcade gaming community. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Was that what I meant? Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like that, like that particular story right there, is just so wholesome. So, the, so the doc brought it full circle because so Tom came out the Twin Galaxies, and that's what started it all. That's what got me started on it. So then the doc gets made. Tom had quit. He hadn't played the game since he was a teenager. You know, he Tom. I didn't realize how much older he was than me. I mean, he's not really that much older, but he is six years older than me. And back in the eighties, I never knew that. I never asked him how old he was never crossed my mind so here i'm 15 16 playing it and he's 21 22 i didn't realize he was that much older than me not that it matters but you know we weren't the same age and i ne- it just never occurred to me never occurred to me to ask or i didn't even think about it and then when you look back on it you talk about it and it's like well yeah he was in college that's when he found the game and he started playing so anyway he inspired me which got me started which you know i got the billion and the, the, the day and all that stuff that went with it well, when the doc came out, since Tom was actually in it, I talked about him and Tim and Andy went and met Tom and they got some of the footage, you know, that's in the doc. And uh, they invited him out to Atumwa. They did a screening in Atumwa. I got inducted into the International Video Game Hall of Fame in 2016. And it's in Atumwa. And Tim and Andy came out and they actually did a screening in Atumwa. So, you know, like Walter was there and they brought Tom out. And it's the first time Tom and I had seen each other since we were kids. And that was the first time Tom had seen the doc. And so the doc inspired him to start playing again. He watched the doc and he's like, you know, I started that quest and I never finished it. <laughs> you know, Tim got his, Dwayne got his, had it taken down because of the board. You know, he, he took it down. Um, Rick got it. You know, there's been several of us that were inspired by Tom that all got it and Tom never did. And watching the doc inspired him after all this time and space to start playing it again. <laughs> So I was happy that I was actually inspiration for him to complete his journey. And yeah. it was so awesome to see him in Atumwa. And it was even better to be there in Santa Fe to see him finally finish it. You know, it's like this long marathon. It's went on for almost 30 years from when he started it. And here he is crossing the finish line and I get to be there to share it with him. It was so awesome. Yeah. Couldn't be a better Aww. guy to, to, to go through some of that stuff with. During, the, during my documentary, one of the scenes, there's a gentleman that has no hair. I hate to call him a bald person because some people take offense to that. But uh, it was one of my failures. And he turned around, and I don't remember the exact words, but he, he said something like, Tim, that was one of the greatest things I've ever witnessed. And, you know, I'm, I'm not even kidding. And I didn't want to hear it, you know, because it was a failed attempt. Well, the reason I'm telling you this story is that person, a lot of people know who he is, but they don't know who that person was. And what I mean is... If you ever read the EGM magazine, mm-hmm. Electronic Gaming Monthly, that was Trickman Terry from the magazine. He did all the trick columns oh. in the magazine. So the cool thing, the thing that I love telling everybody about this, he's a friend of mine, but this was so cool to me personally. It was just me and Tina that weekend, and he knew she doesn't stay up a really long time. So I started, I don't remember, I think it was Easter. I want to say it was Easter because I had Friday off. I started on Good mm-hmm. Friday, I believe. So we started Friday morning. So Terry had to work. He worked all day in Chicago. He got off work, changed clothes, jumped in his car, and drove from his work to my house in Iowa after being at work all day. He comes to my house, and he comes in the house, and he tells Tina to go to bed. Terry stayed up all night with me. 
he stayed up and he provided support for me all night long. Anything I needed, he was somebody to talk to. Do you need something to drink? Do you want something to eat? You know, how's it going? Do you know how many lives you have? And he was, he was totally my support system throughout the night. And he stayed up. He worked, got up, worked all day, drove to Iowa, stayed up all night with me, waited until Tina got up the next morning. And then he finally went to bed. He went to sleep and he slept during the day. And that night when he woke up, he made Tina go back to bed again. And he stayed up again with me that night. That is amazing to me that somebody would be willing to do that. You know, you worked all day. You've already put your eight hours in. You've got to deal with the traffic in Chicago. Then you drove over five hours from Chicago to my house. And then you stayed up all night with me. That's that's amazing to have friends that are willing to support Absolutely. you like not a lot of people knew who he was. You know, who was the bald guy? I've been asked that. I've literally been asked that question. Who was the bald guy that was was there for that that marathon? I said, Electronic Gaming Monthly. That was Trick Man Terry. That was the Trick Man in my house supporting <laughs> me. I read Electronic Gaming Monthly oh as gosh. a kid. I never in my wildest dreams thought that the Trick Man would be in my living room supporting me 20 years later playing a video <laughs> That's game. That's amazing, though. You know? Just... It, it, that's how the stories went from Twin Galaxies back in the day all the way up until now. You never knew where the story was going to take you. You didn't know where you were going to end up. You, it, at different points, you never knew there was a story. You know, like I said, the the uh, key to the city was in a box put away. Nobody knew about it. The story was over in the 80s, right? Except for it wasn't. And I just, I love that I've gotten friends that I didn't know Terry before all this started. It was one of the events when Walter took me and Tina to the video game summit when I got my certificate, which was supposed to be the original ending to the doc. That's when I met trick man, Terry and Walter, Tina and I, along with Todd Rogers, we stayed at trick man's house oh. in Chicago. So that was amazing. His basement is a freaking museum. <laughs> He's got all kinds of memorabilia from when he was younger, working at electronic gaming monthly, all the trade shows, all the industry stuff that he went to in Chicago, all the stuff that he's collected. And he set me on a whole new path, which is why we have all the stuff in our living room that we have. The path was when I was a kid, if it wasn't a video game, I didn't spend my money on it. I didn't have a lot of money, but the money I had video game related went to video games. Well, when I went in Terry's basement, it's a museum. He's got every console you've ever seen and even consoles you've never seen, but only in magazines. He's got arcade machines. He's got pinball machines. But then the part that was amazing is he has all the lanyards, all the badges, all the posters, all the different stuff from all the events that he's ever went to. And then he's got the memorabilia. He's got the Sonic figures and the crazy taxi remote controlled car. And, you know, anything you can think of that was gaming related that you saw in a store as a kid, but didn't buy, but you kind of remember it's there. He has it. And because of him, Tina started collecting all the stuff and we've got figurines all over the house and we've got 600 Skylanders. And, and it was all because of meeting Terry, which we met because of the doc. And then, yeah, it's just so many things went full circle. It was just incredible. Oh my gosh. Well, we've been talking for almost two hours. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I'm the same way. Um, that's how sometimes these interviews get a little out of control. <laughs> Not really, but I, I, I love to talk and I find the more I talk, the more questions I end up having. <laughs> um, it happens a lot. And it's, it's kind of fun for me doing these interviews because not everybody asks the same questions. People watch yeah. things and they see things differently or they, they view it differently or they're, they're curious about things that the other person didn't even notice maybe. And it's, it's a lot of fun. So it's easy to get lost in conversation sometimes. Absolutely. Um, do you have a Twitch channel that you want people to follow you on so I, they can I watch your I hardly ever stream, but I do have a Twitch channel. <laughs> 
Twitch channel. Um, it's obvious, you know, it's twitch.tv and then forward slash. And my, my gamer tag is Sprinter461. So S-P-R-I-N-T-E-R-461. And, and that's taken, uh, there's been a few people that's asked me what the hell that means. What's that guy do with gaming? And I said, actually, <laughs> not a damn thing. Um, <laughs> my dad, if you remember in the doc, they showed some of the, the racing stuff. And I talked about my dad a little bit. He drove a push truck at our local sprint car track up at Knoxville, Iowa, which is the most famous sprint car track, arguably, in the entire world. And uh, he drove a push truck. Sprint cars don't have starters. They're very minimalistic cars. There's no starter. There's no battery. There's no transmission. It's in gear or out of gear. So the way they started is they put it in gear and a truck pushes them and the wheels turn, starts the engine turning, car starts. So anyway, my dad did that. And that's how I got into racing. Uh, that's probably the first thing I remember in my life. I, I'm pretty sure I probably said race before I said mom or dad. So <laughs> sprint cars, the media often calls them sprinters for short. It's a contraction of sprint cars. They're referred to as sprinters. And my favorite sprinter was the number 461 car out of Pennsylvania. It was called the Brickmobile. And the paint job on the wings and on other parts of the car, it looked like a brick wall. The guy that owned it, his name was Walt Dyer, and he owned a masonry business. It was Walt Dyer Masonry. And the, the car was unique. You've you seen it from a mile away. You know, the brick wall mm -hmm. just stood out on the track. And it was a 461, which most cars only have one or two digits. And here his car has three. And then on the shirts, he had the car on the front, and he had some stuff on the back, sponsors. And then on the sleeve... It had an outhouse, which uh, people listening to this might not even know what an outhouse was. <laughs> Years ago, I know what after, an outhouse is. Yep, they were outside. They were an outhouse. And uh, his his has a picture of an outhouse on the sleeve. And since he's into masonry, the old saying is built like a brick shithouse. So <laughs> when I saw, I'd heard my mom say that when I was a kid, you know, because back in the day, there were a lot of outhouses around and stuff. And we actually lived in a house that had one, which wasn't fun in the wintertime in Iowa. But uh, <laughs> the first time I saw that car, the bricks, the it just had a unique look. The guy was really nice, the owner, the driver. And then I seen the built like a brick shit house on the sleeve, and I just started cracking up. It made me remember my mom saying it. So I bought one of his shirts. So when I went online um, the first time, my, my love for Sprint cars, I started using the name Sprinter. Well, as we got that was back in the BBS days, before Internet. So when Internet came around, I started using Sprinter. And then as the internet grew and more and more people got on, you'd go to a new site and you'd find out Sprinter was gone. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, now what the hell do I do? So then my favorite Sprint <laughs> car is the 461. So I just became Sprinter 461. And I, I, I use that everywhere. I've had that for, geez, I don't know, 15, 20 years. It's Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, you know, everywhere. So that's my Twitch. Yeah. Show. See, I rambled Perfect. again on a very short, could have been a short answer. No, no, <laughs> no. That's so exciting because I remember you talking about, you talked about that a little bit in the documentary as well. So, you know, it's, I love it. I, it's one of those things. I was curious why Sprinter 461. Yep, so, that's what, I mean, you answered the question somebody, without me having to ask. <laughs> somebody asked me one time when they saw Sprinter back when I was just Sprinter, they say, Sprinter, what event do you run? And I said, you've never <laughs> seen me. Because I only run when chased and I don't get chased very often. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Do you have any other social media that you would want people to follow um, you on? I'm on Facebook as Tim McVeigh. I've got my own personal page. Um, we've got a, my wife mostly maintains kind of like a, I guess you'd call it a fan page. Mm -hmm. um, I'm on the U.S. National Video Game Team page. And I'm on, I'm on Twitter as Sprinter461. Most of my Twitter stuff comes from Facebook. It cross posts for me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I stream PC games and whatever I feel like it, I guess, whenever I feel like it on Facebook more often than anything. It, oh, it just, okay. It integrates so easily with the PC when I'm on there. But if I do any arcade streaming, it's on Twitch. I got the webcam mounted to the machine and I just plug the laptop in and turn it on and it's on Twitch and away we go. So if anybody Perfect. wants to see it, it may be few and far between, but if they go to my page and, and follow it, they'll know when I go live if they're interested. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to talk with me, Tim. I know that you've rehashed a lot of these stories many times, and but I was really excited to finally get to talk to you myself. So. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your time as well. You know, a lot of people, uh, they see themselves as pseudo-celebrities or whatever they envision themselves as, and and I don't. I just, I view myself as just a guy that plays video games. It's really good at one game. So, um, people appreciate me taking my time, but I appreciate you taking your time too. Without <laughs> you doing what you do and hosting people like myself, people don't know who we are. They don't get a chance to know us better or learn stuff about us. So very much appreciate you doing what you do and taking the time to talk with me. So thank you. Of course. And I will have links to um, like your social media, your Twitch, uh, the U.S. National Video Game Team, um, all that stuff I'll have on my website in the show notes for this episode. So, um, but yeah, I think that's it. I'm going to go ahead. and Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to check out cakebites.com for show notes for today's episode. In addition to links to all of the social media where you can find me and the show. I hope to hear from you soon. See y'all next time.